Boom, and we're live. How are you, Dom? Welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm doing great, Joe. Pull this Thanks sucker right up close. Okay. There you go. If you're, I know you've done the podcast before. You did Tim Ferriss's yeah. podcast. I heard you on that. It was, I did, it was yeah. Like, uh, three of them, I think I did. I'm on for three. Three, really? Podcasts, oh, I, I need to so, listen yeah. to the other two then. Mm -hmm. um, what is this wine you brought me, man? This is crazy. That is... Do you think uh, I'm a drunk? Is this what this is? I Maybe the, <laughs> the dry farm wines guys think that. Uh, this but, is a uh, giant magnum. I'd have to have a party. It's a uh, wine that's pretty legit in regards to if you want to stay on a ketogenic diet. Yeah. And uh, I tested this in, in my office, actually, and, and just found that it to be it's non-glycemic. For one thing, which means it doesn't impact the sugar content is so low. There's not an elevation in, in blood glucose. And uh, I can stay in ketosis on this wine. If I do one glass, two or th uh, three starts to kick me out. But two glasses of wine, you can completely stay in ketosis. And Interesting. Three, um, most glasses, most wine will kick you out of ketosis? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's highly dependent on like, like a Merlot, you know, a, a dry wine typically doesn't, but a, a Is Merlot wine, more dry? Uh, most of it. Yeah. yeah. Most of the time. Yeah. Uh, but, white wines tend to kick me out more. And of course, something like uh, a sweet wine will like kick Like a Riesling out. or something like that. Yeah. Really sweet yeah. wine. Uh, sangria, you know, that'll kick oh, you out yeah. very fast. That's just but, sugar. Yeah. And even beer does, even though it's supposed to be low carb, beer tends to kick me out. Really? It's a Michelob Ultra, maybe one you know, one or two, but other than that, yeah. I mean, I get that question a lot. So it actually got me interested into studying this so I can answer some of the questions with some level of knowledge. And after testing these wines and uh, I came to the conclusion, yeah, you can drink two glasses of wine a day on a strict ketogenic diet. And I mean, this is important for, you know, people that are doing it to manage their health long-term. Right. And, um, Especially people with actual health issues where ketogenic diet yeah. ketogenic diet benefits them, like yeah, epileptic. Absolutely. absolutely. Like when I got into this, it was uh, pediatric epilepsy, like in 2007 or 8. And now the applications are expanding, you know, a dozen or more. So we hold a conference, a metabolic therapeutics conference, where top-tier top people in academia and like from Johns Hopkins, they, they were probably one of the spearheaded ketogenic diet application clinically and uh, top tier scientists like from Yale and Harvard and other places uh, present here. And it, it's I think the application was like 11 or 12 applications for the ketogenic diet where there's good peer reviewed research to support the efficacy uh, as a metabolic based therapy for a number of everything from you know, polycystic ovary syndrome to acne to rare, even genetic disorders like uh, Angelman syndrome is something that we're studying. That? Uh, it's a it's a genetic disorder where a housekeeping gene uh, is mutated and it results in seizures and uh, motor function impairment. And the ketogenic diet is remarkably effective. Uh, not it's really drug resistant seizures that these kids have, and even in the presence of a persistent molecular pathology, a genetic pathology, the ketogenic diet, uh, through altering metabolism with the ketogenic diet, you can largely silence the, the pathology and the motor function impairments associated with this disease. And that, that's amazing to me, that you have a disease that is persistently there due to a genetic mutation, and you can largely silence 
the, wow. uh, the symptoms, that the is seizures. And In the interest of addressing people that are probably on the, the ground floor, and I, I feel like there's very few people today that don't understand what a ketogenic diet is, but just in case. For people who don't know, there are people that use carbohydrates mainly for fuel, and then there's the ketogenic diet, which makes your body run on fats and ketones. So try to kind of explain that to people, like how this came about, um, how people started uh, uh, researching this, and and how you got involved. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, this goes back... Uh, if not centuries, like millennia, you know, to the, dating back to the time of Hippocrates when it was observed that fasting was a quote-unquote cure for seizures. And with the observation... Really? Yeah, so fasting puts you into fasting ketosis, right? So, so you, even intermittent fasting? Like, I do the 14-hour thing? Where four, I, 14 hours, you know, that's that's clinical... I mean, technically, that's kind of... I call that semi a semi-fasted state when you achieve that. You know, when you're eating breakfast, it could be, you know, 12 hours or more since you've eaten last and you're breaking the fast, essentially. But with severe epileptic patients, uh, it was found that when you when they restricted food and, and in some cases water after uh, about two or three days, you had profound seizure control where it silenced even the worst seizures. And this was observed, uh, you know, for millennia, like I said. And uh, the there was some work done in the, the early 1900s and, and 1920s. Uh, there was some work done at the Mayo Clinic that, uh, that observed the presence of these ketone bodies in people that were eating a carbohydrate-restricted diet that was primarily uh, based on eating fat and with a minimal amount of protein, just enough to ensure there's not protein, you know, malnutrition. And it was observed that there was an elevation of ketone bodies, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate in the blood. So they called it, uh, physiologists called it the ketogenic diet. Uh, even technically, maybe beta-hydroxybutyrate is not a ketone, but physiologists called these ketone bodies, beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone. And it mimicked the physiological state of fasting in many ways. So if you were to draw blood off someone on a ketogenic diet, it would sort of look like they had been fasting a few days uh, because it's mimicking, uh, the way I think about it, it's suppressing the hormone insulin and kind of mimicking the fuel, the substrate utilization that you would be using in a state of being fasted, which is primarily fats, ketones, and uh, to a lesser extent, uh, uh, I mean, uh, glucose from amino acids from protein, you are mobilizing some gluconeogenic amino acids from your skeletal muscle when you are fasting. Uh, ketones are protein sparing though, so they are anti-catabolic in that way. So because we make ketones and our large brain has a massive demand for energy and the ketones fulfill that for the most part when fasting, uh, it prevents us from breaking down muscle. Uh, ah, it prevents us from liberating the gluconeogenic amino acids that would otherwise, you know, be chewed up and used to maintain our glucose levels. So the ketones sort of replace glucose. The brain has the metabolic flexibility to adapt from using glucose to using primarily ketone bodies. And those ketone bodies really have a protein-sparing anti-catabolic effect. Now, is this an ancient system that was in place back when people, you know, obviously couldn't go to the store and your diet varied depending upon what was available and it just allowed people, like, say, like, maybe Inuits that lived off a lot of fats because they really don't have many carbohydrates if you're 
living off a of whale blubber and things along those lines like they had to back then? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's hardwired in, in humans and obviously in, in other animals. My my wife studies manta rays, and uh, and they they're the they're the, like the Einsteins of the sea. So they're the fish with the biggest brains of all animals. And we've done metabolomic studies on them and looking at the blood, and they produce a significant amount of ketones, like two millimolar. Uh, they dive really deep, so it may help protect them from that. So yeah, animals uh, will go into ketosis during fasting, or even if you manipulate their food source, uh, the Keto Pet Sanctuary actually treats dogs uh, that have cancer, and they implement a ketogenic diet in dogs uh, in addition to some other things to help, uh, and the, the, many of these are, are dogs taken from kill shelters, and, and put them on an anti-cancer therapy program, and now, they can get into ketosis. For the most it's part, harder, but most, they can get in. most dog food is not ketogenic. It's like dog no, foods have grain not. in it, right? Yeah. You know, for fillers and things along those lines. It, yeah, it, it's really interesting. I was talking with uh, Ron Penna uh, yesterday uh, from Quest Nutrition, the CEO of Quest Nutrition, and he brought to my attention that if you look on a package of dog food, you won't see carbohydrates listed, even right. though it's, it's the primary, because there was some some laws or policy put into action to prevent carbohydrates from even being listed on kibble, on dog food, which why? I find, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of reasons why, uh, mostly because dogs really shouldn't be eating a carbohydrate-based diet. And that's probably part of the reason, but there's sort of other reasons why. Uh, but it, it's really important um, that, the, so the food that the Keto Pet Sanctuary gives the dogs that, ha that have cancer, and they confirm that they have cancer with a, a glucose PET scan, and they do it you know, before, during, and after, is basically kind of like a raw foods, ketogenic diet that's almost completely restricted in what we would call glycemic carbohydrates, things that would elevate the glucose levels. And uh, it's very high in fat, relatively speaking. Yeah, but dogs you know, really should not be eating any kind of grains at all. Yeah, I, I feed my dog grain-free dog food, but mm -hmm. I don't know if it's carb-free. I don't know what's in there. Is it kibble? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it is kibble. It's, it's hard to find type. out. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, dog food that has, uh, like, some peas and uh, sweet potatoes and things like that it is okay. Uh, but ideally, you know, you want to give your dog, like, a whole food uh, nutrition, just like humans. Mm. You, you know, they say don't give your dog human food, but that's... There's no evidence for that. And, uh, you know, I've given talks where I talked about giving dogs raw food. And there's a, there'd be a reaction from the audience, well, it's dangerous to give your dog, like, raw food. Well, what do they eat in the wild, you know? I mean, if, the, if it's ground beef that's been sitting around in a processing plant for a while, yeah, maybe. But fresh, you know, uh, meat uh, from a butcher or fresh meat, I mean, it's probably the ideal thing for a dog. Ideally, organ meats, like liver, heart, kidneys, things like that, grind it up. Uh, you know, and some some greens too, some things like spinach. You can buy like spinach powder. So the Keto Pet Sanctuary has an ebook that's completely free if you go to ketopetsanctuary.org, uh, I believe, and you can download this ebook and it tells you very precisely how to make your dog food not only to to you know if your dog gets cancer, but to maximize its overall performance. And you are preventing cancer by virtue of putting them on a diet that optimizes your, their metabolic health. Well, that's got to be very difficult to package, though, in something that's uh, sort of evergreen, sits on the shelf and, a, you know, paper bag you can rip open and just pour into a bowl. That's what everybody wants, yeah. like this convenience thing. But There's a way to do it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I know, I know there's 
those guys, like, you know, Epigenics uh, Foundation, they uh, are, are working. They basically support the Keto Pet Sanctuary, and they're working out not only the macronutrient ratios that need to go into the food, but also the types of food and also being able to package it in a way to ultimately come up with a food that you can go. It may not be on the shelf and probably ideally shouldn't be on the shelf, but it'll be like in the refrigerator section of your pet food store. Mm. So you go there and like for our dogs, we get like a tube of freshly ground up uh, steak or whatever. And we feed that. We take, you know, the ground meat and mix it with organ meat and mix it with uh, different greens like broccoli and things like that and, and give it to them. And they love it. We put a little bit of coconut oil on it sometimes. Uh, so you would go to the the grocery store, or it would be could be shipped to your house, and it's basically kept, you know, refrigerated, and it has a, the complement of like organ meats to, you know, the proper types of fats, uh, you know, fish oil fats, and and fiber, and um, and it fits that macronutrient ratio of the ketogenic diet. Your dog must have horrific farts. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of them does. Yeah, we have a Great Dane. They're both re- rescue dogs. Uh, one of them does. I'm hearing broccoli, organ meats, and coconut oil. I'm like, whoa, get out of the room. Yeah. It's either my wife uh, or uh, the dog. I don't know. She might be. She might, so, <laughs> might be blaming the dog. Yeah. Might be blaming the dog. But, um, uh, they're how, healthy. How long have you been involved in ketogenic research and research on keto diets? And, and how long have you been doing it yourself? Yeah, I, I guess it was. I got turned on to it in 2007 or eight. And uh, actually, I was communicating online uh, on a nutrition forum, on a fitness website. And uh, I was a neuroscientist. I did my PhD on cellular neuroscience. I did something called patch clamp electrophysiology, where I electrically record from neurons. And it was, you know, really uh, mostly just neuroscience. And my postdoctoral research was studying seizures. And uh, I got to the point where we're doing some drug-based research on seizures and other types of research. And, and the types of seizures that I study are powerful tonic-clonic seizures that a Navy SEAL could potentially experience using a closed-circuit rebreather. So when they're underwater, a limitation for their time underwater is CNS oxygen toxicity. And it's also a limitation for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So rebreathers are those ones that don't in- emit bubbles. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So there's a, a bit of a stealth component. So you're underwater, and if you're going over a lake to uh, engage the enemy, they can't see you coming. So that's the advantage, that they're very um, stealth-like. Uh, the disadvantage is that at 50 feet of seawater, uh, in just 10 minutes, you have the potential to get CNS oxygen toxicity. Of course, if you follow the guidelines and dive within the guidelines uh, of you know the depth and the time, then you're typically okay 99.9% of the time. But if you have you know uh, someone shooting with a 50 caliber machine gun on, <laughs> into the water, you're not going to want to come up. You know, you're going to want to stay down there. If you have a mine to go down to the bridge or a ship or something, you have to likely in many cases go down below 50 feet. And it puts you at the potential of having a seizure. And a seizure underwater, the seizure itself is not uh, uh, deadly per se, but having a seizure underwater could uh, be fatal to the mission and, and, you know, the warfighter. So uh, my research was really developing various technologies where we actually put things inside a, micros- uh, inside a hyperbaric chamber, like uh, an atomic force microscope or a laser scanning confocal, or we can look at the mitochondria under pressures that simulate these operational conditions. And, uh, and that was about 10 years ago. And out of that research evolved 
studying various things and looking at the cells and even the mitochondria and observing that ketones essentially enhance brain energy production and resilience in extreme environments of high pressure and high oxygen. And from those cellular studies, uh, I became more interested in what people do when drugs don't work for epilepsy. And I looked up and found the ketogenic diet. And I was like, this fits in perfect because my background was studying nutrition. And I was studying pharmacology at the time, but it allowed me to bring nutrition back into my research program uh, and studying the ketogenic diet specifically. And the, the program officer at the time at the Office of Navy Research really liked the idea of the ketogenic diet in a drug. So being able to consume something that can elevate these blood ketone levels, which can cross the blood-brain barrier and make our brains kind of super brains under physiological extremes. So that's what I really, I put my efforts into studying the ketogenic diet and also into developing and testing a wide range of exogenous ketone products and which come, which are on the spectrum of drug-like to on the spectrum of kind of natural-based things that can be combined together that put you in a state of therapeutic ketosis within like 30 minutes to 60 minutes. So you can use it right before an operation uh, right before mission or therapeutically. So if you have a child, for example, that has status epilepticus, which is continuous seizures that you can't stop, instead of giving them an anti-epilepsy drug that can have side effects and even developmental delays, uh, the ketogenic diet, you know, takes 24, 48, maybe 72 hours to work. But if you can tube feed them, uh, uh, a ketone supplement and put them into therapeutic ketosis, then you can mitigate these seizures, which could have potential long-term uh, effects. So that's, that's just one example of a therapeutic application uh, of exogenous ketones. But so you're doing the research on this, and you decided to start doing it yourself. Yeah, I started doing it myself to get a better understanding. Actually, the there was a, a patient in, in the UK, his name is Mike Dancer, and if you just kind of Google Mike Dancer and epilepsy, you'll come up on his story, which is a really remarkable story, because he tried a dozen, a half dozen, uh, maybe even a dozen different types of anti-epileptic drugs and high doses, of things like Keppra, like things that are the standard of care, and it didn't work for him. He connected with me, and I, I mentioned a couple supplements before I embarked on the ketogenic diet, and Long story short, I gave him the information, kind of here's the ketogenic diet, here's the scientific rationale. It looks like before you go and have brain surgery, they were going to remove part of his hippocampus. Whoa. Uh, I said, you know, just use this. And that was maybe about 2008 or 9-ish. And uh, long story short, you know, I didn't talk to him because I got really busy. I transitioned into a tenure track, you know, assistant professor position. I was working very long hours. Maybe four months or so went by. And then when I contacted him, he was like, I have not had a seizure in this time. And he was having multiple seizures sometimes per day and couldn't leave the house. And it was almost like a proof of concept. And it also caused pretty significant body composition changes in him. And he was in the fitness industry and even did a bodybuilding show. So he basically was it saved him <laughs> it saved his life actually uh because he had what what i would call and what the doctors call terminal epilepsy there was no way to control seizures and when when the drugs failed the ketogenic diet worked for him and that was almost like proof of concept i'm reading i thought the ketogenic diet was kind of like this fad diet i just knew about it in the the fitness circles is something that i would actually typically avoid but when you read about the history of the diet in the 1920s, early 1920s, and how uh, Dr. Uh, Wilder kind of developed this therapy uh, at Mayo Clinic, there's like really legit uh, 
peer-reviewed research behind it, an enormous amount of research. And I realized it was a grossly underutilized, you know, metab- what I would call metabolic-based therapy for, for seizures. Why would you typically avoid it? Uh, because they're, in our healthcare systems, there's really not the infrastructure. When a patient comes in and, uh, and they have uncontrollable seizures, the, the neurologist or epileptologist typically does not have the skill set in nutrition, knowledge in nutrition, to be able to guide a patient uh, successfully into nutritional ketosis and to do that. So they would have to refer them to a registered dietitian, which typically are not savvy in ketogenic diets. Uh, but, but now the Charlie Foundation is a foundation that works closely with Johns Hopkins, and I think there's about 150 to 200 clinics worldwide uh, that are ketogenic diet clinics that have, you know, registered dietitians that are working to assist patients. So now, you know, uh, the infrastructure is kind of there. But doctors typically will prescribe a drug whenever they can. And even when they know, they may... Most of them are probably aware that, you know, it is the standard of care. The ketogenic diet is the standard of care when, when drugs fail. And there's things like vagal nerve stimulation and other things. But the ketogenic diet has been around so long, it has an amazing track record. There are some side effects associated with it, uh, mostly associated with the classical ketogenic diet, which was like 90% fat, like 8% protein. But now uh, Eric Kossoff at uh, Johns Hopkins has done a lot of work on what I would call, you know, the modified ketogenic diet. He calls it the modified Atkins diet, which is more liberal in protein. It's 20 to 30% protein and the balance being mostly fats from healthy sources and the carbohydrates are just, you know, completely non-glycemic carbohydrates you get from salads or green vegetables and things like that. What are those side effects? Uh, So with the classical ketogenic diet, they found that kids put on the diet, it uh, reduced IGF-1, uh, which mm. um, if you're into longevity, that's, that might yeah. be a good thing, right? Uh, and it reduced their terminal height in, in some cases because of the protein restriction. So restricting protein can, uh, for reasons we know in the longevity field, you know, uh, reduce uh, IGF-1 signaling, uh, insulin and IGF-1 signaling. And that was found to be the case in kids. There's a, a suspected mechanism. But when protein was kind of titrated back in, uh, that was not the case. So there's also kidney stones uh, can happen, and there's a supplement, potassium citrate, that can help kind of offset the mild metabolic acidosis that occurs when you go on the ketogenic diet. And just simply, I mean, you could do that nutritionally just by formulating your diet and using more salt uh, to balance out, using more minerals. So essentially uh, the big issue is just the protein. Just Yeah, I think the protein and the, for kids that are growing and developing and uh, and if you restrict protein in kids that, you know, have all these growth factors and everything that really kind of require uh, and, and also if you go on the ketogenic diet, it you may be inadvertently limiting total calories just because of the palatability of the especially the classical ketogenic diet, whereas the modified Atkins diet which was studied very rigorously at Johns Hopkins by Eric Kossoff, has shown to have like 90% of the benefits of this draconian <laughs> uh, classic ketogenic diet. And uh, when possible, you know, it's better to put, and that's what I follow. I follow modified Atkins, which is just higher in protein. So let's, let's establish the protocol. Like, mm-hmm. So the, the, sta- the, the classic ketogenic diet is 90% fats. 8% yeah. protein, 2% carbs, is that what it is? Uh, that's about the macronutrient ratios, yeah. And they call it, uh, clinically, they call it the 4 to 1 or the 3 to 1 ketogenic diet. And that's really confusing because yeah. that 4 to 1 is in grams, right? So it's, uh, wow. 
It's actually like uh, four parts fat to one part protein and carbohydrates. Carbohydrates being very, very small part of that one, that four to one ratio. And a three to one ratio would be, and that would be like 92% fat. I mean, it's really high. And then the three to one ratio is like 88% fat or close to 85% fat. Uh, so I like to do it. It's, 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 it's better. It's more, it's more easy for me to consider in terms of percentage of calories and, um, and about 75% calories from fat is pretty doable and pretty palatable. So that's how you do it. Yeah. 65 to 70% if, and it's super important for people, uh, not only in the clinical realm, but also people that are doing this, you know, for athletic reasons, for, you know, losing body fat, managing type two diabetes is probably the biggest, the low hanging fruit of all these applications. And I could talk more about that. Uh, the biggest thing to do is to count your macros and test your ketones, of course, but people are horrible at counting how many calories <laughs> they are getting in when you tell them to follow a diet. So they really need a uh, uh, an app, a software program, uh, an app, and uh, Avatar Nutrition makes the kind of gold standard app for uh, uh, tracking your macros. And I'm working with them, hopefully, to develop. What's it called? It's called Avatar Nutrition. That, that's the actual app name. That is the app name, and that's uh, it's a very highly innovative uh, app that not only does it, you know, you, you put in your macro, has it's a macro calculator, those. That macronutrient profile is in the system, and you uh, do body composition measurements weekly, and it calculates through what I would call an artificial intelligence system, an AI system in the algorithm, to to adjust your calories week by week based on the progress that you're making, and uh, and it's the only system that I know of its kind that's a like a macro tracking system that also gives you feedback on how to titrate your calories and your macros over time to hit specific body composition changes that you want to get. And, and this is the, the system, it's the ideal platform to uh, incorporate the ketogenic diet into. So it's going to take some work with uh, you know, the, the guys that are writing software to design it, but essentially you know, you'll have available a ketogenic diet app that will be able to uh, adjust to whatever output that you want, whether it be managing seizures, uh, maybe a metabolic management of cancer, or you know body composition changes or performance changes over time, and that's all being written up. Now I got a bunch of questions. Um, first of all, what do you what 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 are your primary fats like when you when when you tell someone that your diet is, I mean forget about the classic ninety percent fat, but even seventy five percent fat, people just go Jesus, like where. Where's all that yeah. fat coming from? Like, what do, you, what do you use for fats, and do you vary it? Yeah, um, my my diet is pretty. I, I get the same twelve to fifteen foods probably pretty much every week. Uh, my wife kind of eats outside of the range of the ketogenic diet, so sometimes uh, how dare she? Yeah, how dare she? Uh, I don't try does she to eat pasta in front of you and mock you. Uh, she does, <laughs> but I don't crave it. So that's the thing. <coughs> you I don't mean, at she all? thinks it's really strange. I but don't you, aren't you things. Italian? I am. So that created a How bit weird. of a problem with my family. Like I when I go home, yeah, I Lasagna grew up on pasta. Stuff? Oh, yeah. So yeah, my carbohydrate tolerance is actually really good. So if I go back to uh, a higher carb diet, uh, you know, I can't throw in three, 400 grams of carbs a day, but I tolerate it very well. So me going into a ketogenic diet was a very strange thing for me to do that. Uh, I had read Rob Wolf's book and knew about the paleo diet. 
and uh, and even uh, some some of the writings of Gary Taubes, but I was a little hesitant or uh, skeptical about about it. And uh, why were you skeptical? Well, I, I really thought that you need carbs to grow in the gym and maintain your strength yeah. and uh, and performance. And I just felt that the brain needed glucose for fuel. And I didn't, you know, I was kind of unaware of the research that was done in Harvard in 1967 uh, by George Cahill. And I did get a chance to talk to him before he well, passed away. Well, even Rob Wolf is, you know, Rob is really into jujitsu right yeah, now. Yeah. And he's having an issue with uh, maintaining a strict ketogenic diet. I don't know if he's going yeah. with the classical ketogenic or the modified Atkins, but he has a, a problem with like having the the carbohydrate restriction when he has really hard training days yeah i to i mean I, i've talked to rob about mm -hmm. that a little bit uh the body is incredibly adaptable to switching fuel sources and adapting to that fuel source over time and some people may be a little less adaptable than other people but i think that if he was to give it uh i think you know knowing rob he did give it a very legit shot he may benefit from adding some slow carbs in just prior to an intra workout you know during like his yams MMA or something those lines so what's um, a, what do you consider a slow carb uh you know there are supplements out there but yeah if we're going to talk about uh Foods. i would say yeah maybe some a little bit of sweet potato in you know prior to training or the day before maybe a few hours before so it's some sort of a car with uh plenty of fiber something like a, a yeah digest slowly is that the idea yeah, even a high molecular weight carbohydrates that are on the market now like I, what I are think, those um you know i don't use them anymore i know jeff bullock has a product out uh you can, I think you can starch is the name of it. And it just, uh, you know, it will s slightly eleva elevate your glucose and not trigger an insulin response. So you won't go hypoglycemic after. And it'll just, you know, essentially, you know, titrate in carbohydrates and glucose into your system over a predetermined period, you know, so they know that you're, uh, it'll kind of hit your system and sustain it for you know, three or four hours, which is ideal for people engaging in, you know, uh, uh, MMA or, or cycling during that, during that time frame. But I think, I mean, if you're getting in uh, a sufficient amount of calories and if you are using things like creatine monohydrate, which knows work, you work through the phosphagen system, you are able to generate ATP uh, for those short bursts of power that you need to manage your opponent and, and sustain it. So for a supplementation, if you, if you were going to supplement creatine, would you do that uh, prior to the workout? Would like a lot, I know a lot of people take creatine post-workout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're taking creatine, yeah, and you stop taking creatine, it's in your system for, you know, a couple days to a week or more. So it's just, you know, on a daily basis, it doesn't matter necessarily when you take it, it's just that you take it on, uh, and probably at least three grams per day uh, for a larger guy, three to five grams per day. Is that something like, you take? Uh, yeah, it's one of the few supplements that I take. I only take maybe three or four supplements. I used to take all these different supplements, so I'm more of a food guy. Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe I take three or four supplements. And, and I use some of the new food products that are coming out on the market now, uh, ketogenic food products, and that allows me to maintain my ketogenic diet when I'm traveling. Have you, do you ever mess around with beta alanine? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's something I use to increase uh, carnosine levels, right? Uh, it's something that I used in the past. I don't like the tingles that I get. A lot of people like the tingles. Like niacin-type tingles? Tells them, uh, it's Not like, quite that extreme? It's like niacin, but niacin it's working freaky. through a different receptor. Yeah, the first time I took niacin, I thought I was going to die. But <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, yeah it was, I, it's I, unpleasant. <clears throat> it's not something that you know. Some people look forward to it. I don't. Those people are strange. But yeah, it's uh, weird. The beta alanine is uh, get, makes me uncomfortable. But I remember drinking it on the way to the gym. It was part of my pre workout formula, uh, and it just made me itchy. And yeah, I just, I just didn't like it. And you know, the, the data's not. Data's a little bit. It's it's not. I wouldn't. It's not what I would call compelling. But it looks like it may offer a benefit. It was just recommended to me. That's why I, yeah. I brought it up. So you creatine three grams per day, and what do you weigh yeah. about two fifteen something like that? What do you weigh? Yeah, on the mark. Yeah, I'm I, pretty good at that. I, uh, I lost some weight. Fighters. <laughs> yeah, that was like almost <coughs> exactly. So I had uh, a couple of weeks ago. I got down. I I did a, a mission with NASA, and I was underwater for a while. And when it came back up, how long uh, was a while? Uh, I was under for 10 days. Jesus Christ, that's more than a while. <laughs> makes me an aquanaut, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. So, And during that time, during the training for it, I was doing a lot of swimming, which was, uh, I sink like a rock. I'm kind of negatively buoyant. So me too. I was, uh, <laughs> it, it took a, a lot out of me, and I tried to to get into my file that I was like closer to 200. I think maybe you'd be more likely to be an astronaut candidate if you're like lower, you know, because yeah. weight in space is a big thing to me. So I tried to get my body weight from 226 down to 207, and I did. It took about three months, and now I'm creeping slowly back up. I'm down. Up what did you do to do that? Just high aerobic? Workout, uh, or yeah, calorie just calorie restriction. I did intermittent fasting, really, just transition to a diet where um, I typically eat a, a ketogenic breakfast that's kind of small, and I would made that a little bit smaller. And two or three days out of the week, uh, on average, I would just kind of not eat until dinner, and then I would eat a su- substantial dinner, and then maybe do some activity after that, and then kind of nibble at nighttime, uh, maybe an hour or two before bed. And that was kind of my routine. So almost like a warrior diet type deal? Uh, pretty close to that, yeah, from what I know. That, that's pretty close to that. And I did not in any way feel uh, deprived of food. And that's really, you know, people who follow a low-carb diet or ketogenic diet, they think you don't have to count macros, which mm. is like the biggest mistake. They think you just go on this and you don't have to count calories, but you really do. I mean, you could sit back, you could sit down in front of the TV with like a bag of cashews and I can polish that off pretty quick. And you could do a lot of damage. Like that's a lot of calories. So yeah. it depends on the kind of foods that There's you're like eating. Two handfuls of almonds, I think, is like 500 calories or something crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's like, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So I talk to people who follow the ketogenic <laughs> diet, and they're like, the ketogenic diet doesn't work for me. I got on it, and I gained like three pounds. And I was like, well, what was your calories? What was your macros? Oh, I have no idea. I don't. I was told I don't have to count that. Yeah, you know, that's the that's most important stuff. thing. Yeah. So this is the function of the app I told you about, Avatar, yeah. which is kind of uh, a macro counting program. Uh, right now, you can set the adjustments to do low carb, but uh, the once the the software is written up to uh, for the keto option, that will be a tremendous resource for people, the average person that wants to do the ketogenic diet, and hopefully we're going to craft it in a way too to to help the uh, the clinical community too. Well, that's so. one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because you're an actual scientist, and this is there's so many misconceptions when it comes to ketogenic diet, the benefits, the problems associated with it, and <clears throat> and there's a bunch of people. That uh, w- one of the things that I've found really fascinating is recently because the ketogenic diet has become so popular, there's been these um, sort of sparsely educated meathead trainer type dudes that are yeah. poo pooing the ketogenic diet. And whenever I see that happen, I go, oh, here's a person whose ideas are threatened. And, you know, like whenever someone says the ketogenic diet's not beneficial or it's just, mm-hmm. this is it's not really worth it. I'm like, OK, but you're not saying anything like where's the science? Like point to something. 
because there's a substantial amount of science that shows the benefit of the ketogenic diet, but there's a lot of meatheads that are that, that, that have been critical of it. And when I when I read that, I'm like, okay, there's you're not saying anything. Like, there's no substantial reason why you're critical of it. This makes me think that you have been pushing a certain type of diet for a long time. This comes along, it shows contrary evidence, and you're trying to diminish it in some sort of a way, but without any actual science. So yeah. what have been the criticisms of the ketogenic diet, and how many of them are actually valid in terms of when, when, when I'm talking about when I'm talking to people, especially if I'm talking to professional athletes, I'm talking to athletes whose very health is it's very critical that they have energy, right? Uh -huh. We're talking about fighters. Yeah. So for them, like to recommend a ketogenic diet to a fighter, um, it's, it's very tricky because we, we, you're talking like 1%, 2% performance could be the difference between victory and defeat and maybe even being knocked out or submitted and being successful. Yeah. So I think most important people need to appreciate that when you transition your body from burning carbohydrates and glucose and forcing it to rely primarily off fat and ketones for fuel or not it's not one or the other but you're shifting for the predominant fuel source to be fat and ketones and that's not happen that's not something that happens like overnight and it doesn't even happen in two or three weeks so what i've seen in elite level cyclists and and other types of sports is that it really takes a minimum of like three months ideally wow. six months and even after a year I think you're getting uh, changes even at the epigenetic level. We know that ketones function as a signaling molecule uh, through histone deacetylase activity that it's actually turning on genes that's causing adaptations in our body. And these, these happen slowly over time. The more you follow the ketogenic diet, the easier it gets because there's a learning curve to, to implementing it. Uh, but the more you follow it, the easier it gets and the more benefits you derive from it over time. And those benefits really don't start to emerge, the benefits that that I'm thinking about after about two or three months. And you're, you're talking about benefits on a cellular level, not a performance I'm, level? Okay, from a performance level, a minimum of two months. Like your performance will go down. So you have to accept, I mean, this is something that fighters would have to do in the off season. I was stunned. Athletes need I was to, stunned at how much of an impact it had on me. I mean, I thought- Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought I'd, how oh, fast were, be, the, yeah. were the benefits? Well, um, the benefits, the, the weight loss was pretty pretty significant pretty quickly. I lost a few pounds like within the first week or two, Yeah. whereas I'm pretty active and it's not, you know, I didn't change much other than that. Um, but what I was uh, amazed at, like the keto flu, you know, what people call the keto yeah. flu, that, Did that, you get that? the dragging. Yeah, like yeah. for the first week or two, like I was yeah. just dragging and I would do okay. like a hard workout. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know how long I keep doing this. Yeah. Okay. That's normal. <clears throat> like, like a big one was hitting the bag. Mm -hmm. That's when I would really feel it mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, I do rounds where I'll, I'll set, you know, like a, a certain amount of rounds, a certain amount yeah. of time. And, um, that's when I could really feel the difference from day to day. And I was really struggling. Yeah, and how long did it take you to adapt to that, or did you adapt to it that? It felt overnight? like uh, a month in, it started to normalize. Okay, like I mean that would be then. consistent with the literature. If you're looking at cyclists, um, and if you're, you know, a number of different athletes, it takes about six weeks. I mean, your performance will go down and then start to creep up back to baseline at around the six week mark. And if you adhere to it strictly, and really stick with your training, you know, in the 
the 12 week mark, you could be breaking new PRs, uh, depending on personal the sport. records. For yeah, non, yeah, 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 personal records. And that's primarily directed to, uh, I would say, endurance athletes, ultra marathon athletes, to cyclists, to runners, to, you know, Ironman athletes. Uh, and the thing that emerged out of all the emails that I get of people sending me blood work and their performance measurements is that I used to think it was about, you know, a month or two. It's more like three months to six months when they really start hitting their stride. Because mm. I think there's pretty profound changes when you when you alter the fuel that you're giving your body in such a profound way. Well, one of the first things that I noticed, the benefits, one of the first benefits was cognitive. Um, it was yeah, a, 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 like a clarity, yeah. um, lack of fogginess towards the middle of the day, uh, the no desire to take a nap, and uh, no, uh, no drop. Like, it, you know, I would have the, the big meal thing and then the drop, the valley, when, you know, yeah. like, oh, your body's, like, digesting everything. Yeah. And people, I thought that was just how you lived. I thought there was no getting around that. That's life. You eat, then you get sleepy. I just, yeah. I didn't think that there was any other options. Yep. Going on a ketogenic diet completely changed that. And when I would tell people about it, they're like, nothing? I'd be like, I'm telling you, there's no difference. I mean, I would eat a meal and go throughout my day, and then it'd be like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, where's this crash? Yeah. It's like, the crash is supposed to be here. Like, yeah. where's it coming? No crash. Yeah, same thing with me. Uh, I mean, looking back at, in undergrad, when I was, like, task-loaded with a lot of classes and stuff, I would make, I was trying to, you know, bulk up at the time, and I would I would put, like, steak or beef on a bagel. So I would cut a bagel kind of in half and, and then put, like, meat and stuff. So I would be getting all the carbs from the bagel, and I would just go get a big Starbucks coffee because I had two to mitigate that crash right. that I would have. And now, so the ketogenic diet, when you eat a meal, it essentially, if it does not abolish, just significantly attenuates that insulin response that you get. So if you, you know, wear something like a continuous blood glucose measurement, like a Dexcon or something, and, and you look at that and you eat a, a standard American diet, you see a big spike up in glucose typically, and, and the postprandial dip in glucose that'll be hypoglycemic and when you do that not only does your mental and physical performance crash but you crave food so that will send you searching send you running to the refrigerator again yeah. to seek a reward to mitigate that that dysphoria i would say that you get from the hypoglycemia so when you on a ketogenic diet you essentially abolish that you don't have this spike in glucose which spikes insulin and your your energy levels are, are maintained and the big thing is cognitive so the Cognitive resilience is is a big thing. So even if you're hypoglycemic, you could like use something to lower your blood glucose like insulin and push it down to a level that would put someone into a coma. And if their ketones are elevated, they are asymptomatic for hypoglycemia. Wow. And this was a study actually going back to the work done by George Cahill at Harvard where he fasted subjects for 40 days. And he did a battery of, you know, cognitive tests, and he measured blood going to the brain and blood coming away from the brain. And he determined that about 70% of brain energy metabolism is derived from ketones when you're fasting. And the same occurs uh, with a, a ketogenic diet, too. So you are literally switching the fuel source that your brain is using. But in an extension of the study, he injected 20 IUs of insulin and pushed glucose down to one millimolar. Uh, which is universally fatal in everyone. So you take a crowd of people who are eating a standard diet and push it down to that. They're, they're, they'd all die. 
So none of them died in the study. I don't have no idea how they got it past the IRB, the ethics review in, in Harvard Medical School, but they did. What year was this? Uh, 1967. Oh. And uh, <laughs> it was a study I became completely fascinated with because I couldn't believe that they did it. Because you can't right. even do it in animals nowadays. You know, the IACUC committee, the Animal Care and Use Committee would, uh, would you know, put a stop to that very quick. You know, they would probably send the investigator, you know, out of the university if they even proposed to do some of the studies that were done. Uh, but what they, when they lowered blood glucose down to that level, which would, you know, put someone into a coma, the subjects were asymptomatic for hypoglycemia because they, their brains were keto-adapted. They had essentially been over a week in, in a fasted state. They were all kind of heavy set. They were divinity students. Uh, and a few, I think, were Harvard Medical students. So they were they tend to be overweight. So they were, they were liberating a lot of fat from their adipose and making lots of ketones. And they were in a state where their brain was tremendously resilient against hypoglycemia because their ketones were elevated. And wow. that has practical implications for so many different... And I was reading this and couldn't believe what I was reading. I called George Cahill. We talked about it. I called all these old-time, you know, physiologists that were in the field just to pick their brain. And they were, like, thrilled that a young guy, you know, just entering like, a tenure-track position was going to, like, kind of make this his career, you know, so mm. it goes back a ways. Uh, but I saw all the implications, not just for epilepsy, but for things like uh, Alzheimer's disease and, and traumatic brain injury and uh, a whole host of neurological disorders. Like, there's one in particular called glucose transporter type 1 deficiency syndrome or glut 1 deficiency and the kids that have this literally have a deficiency of the glucose transporter on the blood brain barrier and their their blood glucose is normal uh, normal levels but the the glucose in their cerebral spinal fluid is under uh, 2 millimolar which is I mean their brains are essentially living in hypoglycemia so they're constantly having seizures they can't move. A lot of them, they're, they're confined to a wheelchair. You put them on a ketogenic diet. Uh, many of them wake up. They start walking around. Their motor function is, is reversed. So it, the ketogenic diet restores brain energy metabolism in these kids that can't uh, you know, use glucose as an energy source with this disorder. It's called glucose transporter type 1 deficiency syndrome. And another very interesting example of a disorder where there's a persistent molecular pathology where the symptoms can be largely silenced with the, the application of uh, a ketogenic diet that needs to be pretty strict. Uh, and that's where ketone supplements come in. So I was, you know, one, it's, it's difficult for some of these kids to follow a ketogenic diet. So a, a ketone supplement can potentially circumvent the dietary restriction that's needed uh, for a ketogenic diet and make it easier for parents and, and kids to implement. But I also think that a ketone supplement can just further elevate ketones if you're on a ketogenic diet and further augment the therapeutic efficacy of the ketogenic diet or performance-enhancing efficacy. So my main application is the warfighter and maybe astronauts too. Uh, so we just think of it as a way to augment, further augment uh, a therapeutic effect or a safety effect when it comes to divers or a performance effect when it comes to warfighters or divers. Now, when you... Um <clears throat> Excuse me. When you when you talk to people about mental performance, have there been studies uh, that have shown uh, any variation between uh, the same individuals on a ketogenic diet or a carbohydrate glucose based diet in terms of mental function? Not good studies. Yeah, not really good studies. What ha has been done? Uh, I mean, the the first study I would say purely ketogenic study that I'm aware of used something as simple as medium chain triglycerides. And uh, it was actually a substance that 
the the chemical name was AC1202, and that substance it, it was in the patent listed as a substance called AC1202. And for and people it, unfamiliar, that's just MCT oil, coconut oil. Yeah. So <coughs> if you were to pull this patent, uh, interestingly, my my colleague and friend Dr. Mary Newport did and, and wrote a book on Alzheimer's disease about the use of of ketones for Alzheimer's. Uh, she identified that the ingredients in this this supplement that help to uh, enhance cognitive function in people with mild cognitive impairment, the the ingredient of this, if you dig into the patent, was caprylic triglyceride, which is a medium chain triglyceride, uh, which is MCT oil. And they did a study, it was a double-blind placebo-controlled study that showed that people who, interestingly, they were not APOE4 positive, that group did not respond, but uh, which is another kind of pathway we can go down, but they, their Im- improvement and cognitive function correlated with their elevation in ketone levels uh, with this supplement. It was a fat that when you consume it, independent of the amount of carbohydrates you consume, it converts that fat into beta-hydroxybutyrate, which you can measure with a little blood meter. And as that level creeped up, and it didn't even have to creep up that high, it was like 0.6 that they were getting significant improvements in the mini mental status tests and, and other tests that are sort of like the standard tests for Alzheimer's disease. And that really got me interested because I knew that levels could go up way higher than 0.06. And they're showing that there's a correlation as ketone levels rise up uh, that you have a proportional increase in cognitive function. So I'm thinking with a ketone ester or other types of ketones, you could elevate that to one, two, three, and four millimolar and then get some really robust because that's sending a lot of energy to the brain. So every millimolar of, of beta-hydroxybutyrate that's in your blood could it's been estimated that it gives you like your brain about a 10% boost in energy. That's incredible. It can, it can restore <clears throat> energy up to, to up to 10%. If you look at, uh, if you do a an FDG PET scan and, um, and a ketone PET scan, so you do a dual imaging for that. Uh, Dr. Stephen Kunane uh, in Canada has done some, some work on that. But that's insane. That it was so like for college students or someone who's studying for an exam or someone who's about to do something very important, um, yeah. exogenous ketones should be like standard, right? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, there's some pretty good evidence to show, but, but it's, that, especially if you have a deficit, right? right. So, uh, and actually, you know, the application that I'm using it for is in an extreme environment when your brain is already at a deficit. Uh, but we could say we're all at a deficit, right? So tomorrow I'm jumping on a red eye and I can't sleep on a plane and I land, you know, and go to my university where I have to teach for a couple hours and then drive a couple hours north and give another lecture at night and I'll be on zero sleep. And I would not even attempt that if I was, you know, wasn't doing what I have been doing. Like I've kind of figured out protocols where I can allow me to function even on extreme lack of sleep so and be able to, you know, motor through it. I'm sorry to interrupt, but so when you land, so would you immediately take some sort of an exogenous ketone, some sort of, what, what do you take? Like what are your ketone supplements? Um, there's a <clears throat> wide variety of ketone supplements on the market. So. Right. I'm kind of a food guy, so I just use them uh, almost kind of sparingly, but I do tend to use them every day. Uh, the supplements that I've packed in my bag are uh, the Kegenics supplement is one that I've uh, been using, and also the Prove It Keto OS product that mixes beta-hydroxybutyrate salt with MCT powder. 
So there's a couple other forms of just beta-hydroxybutyrate, but our studies show that just consuming beta-hydroxybutyrate does not give you, at least in the, the ketone salt formula, does not give you a lot of the benefits that uh, we see in some of the studies that we're running. And the beta-hydroxybutyrate needs to be mixed with medium-chain triglyceride fat, and that's pretty important. And I think that that has a number of benefits. The medium-chain triglyceride delays gastric absorption, so uh, it also further boosts ketone levels higher than you could get with ketone salt alone. So you get an elevation of ketone levels that's sustained for longer, and, and that probably, that sustainment is due to kind of delaying gastric absorption because the fat kind of delays the release of the ketones into the bloodstream. And it also, it's stimulating your own ketone production. So you're taking a fat, right? And that's what happens when you mobilize body fat. You have a, a wide variety of enzymes that convert that fat into ketones. If you take a ketogenic fat, the same thing is happening. You're revving up that system in addition to the exogenous ketones. So the, the Prove-It product, KetoOS, uh, Ketogenics, and, and there's a couple other companies emerging on the market. We have our own company, uh, Ketone Technologies, and we are partnering with government agencies like Department of Defense, ONR, NASA to do research, to fund research with these institutes to really nail down the optimal formula uh, for anti-seizure effects, the optimal formula for uh, motor function effects, the optimal formula even for strength. And the one with strength will probably involve you know, adding amino acids, adding creatine monohydrate. So these will be formulas that will be optimized. So our company is working on that. We don't have any products yet, but if you sign up for the newsletter, we, we will update people on the newsletter. And then when the products do come out and emerge, you know, we'll kind of let people know. So when you, when you say you're a food guy, are there any foods that you can eat that will... Sardines, yeah. Sardines? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I travel with... Uh, well, I, this trip it was canned chicken uh, and sardines. So there's a couple. Wild Planet makes a, a good can, and Tim Ferriss. I kind of turned him on to it, and uh, it really exploded. The the company like kind of emailed me and thanked me. You know, they're really exploding. So it's a small company. They do they're called uh, Wild Planet. Wild Planet sardines, and they're packed in olive oil, and they're like might be depending on what you buy, like a little bit of lemon. They might have a slice of lemon or lightly uh, lightly smoked or whatever, but they are really, really good. And, uh, I mean, I look forward to eating them. Uh, for me, I'm kind of weird. Like, that is a treat for me. Uh, and that's, you know, I've taken a lot of different things and experimented with a lot of th different things. And simply just eating sardines, like, it's like the perfect food. And eggs, too, are the perfect food. You asked me, like, where I get my fat from. Uh, I do get a lot from the olive oil that are packed in the sardines. So I eat a lot of fatty fish, lots of egg yolks. I will make an egg yolk omelet and I'll give the like the whites to my dog for protein, you know, because they need a little bit more protein. So I'll make an egg yolk omelet and I will cook it in butter and, uh, you know, maybe make some asparagus on the side, like cooked in butter. So I get a lot of fat from uh, macadamia nuts, uh, a few nuts, uh, sardines, fatty fish, a lot of salmon and a lot of egg yolks and fatty cuts of meat. So we go to the butcher and particularly pick out fatty cuts of meat and, um, Olive oil, coconut oil, MCT oil are all things that we have. We you use. have you ever had issues with sardines and heavy metals? No, um, I think heavy metals are more of an issue with <coughs> larger predatory fish. Like, I mean, I think swordfish would be kind of at the top of the chain there. Uh, 
of course, you know, you're eating like a mako shark or something like that. Right. You're going to be ingesting. And if you do that on a daily basis, I wouldn't want, if you're a pregnant woman, you know, I would stay away from big predatory fish. But one thing about sardines is that they can be farmed in a sustainable way. And uh, the the amount of heavy metals will be typically proportional to the size of the fish and whether it's predatory. The reason so, why I'm asking is I, I was eating sardines like two cans a day for a while mm-hmm. and I got my blood work done and there was like a very trace amount of arsenic in my system. Oh, arsenic. And the doctor said, uh, what are you eating? And, and he was going over to different things. And I, and I said, I eat a lot of sardines. Do you know where like, it came Cut from? Cut those out. The sardines? Yeah. No. Store. Okay. I don't know. Just yeah. Whatever was on the shelf. I mean, we travel all over. We were in uh, Borneo and uh, you know Malaysia and Indonesia and all these places. And, and you see some some boats coming in, and those sardines are going to various plants. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, and even bigger companies, you know, will source out wherever wherever you know is cheapest. Right. Uh, so I like to be pretty particular about, especially if I'm going to eat something in such a high volume, like where it's coming from, to actually like visit the plant and where it's coming from and get some information uh, to where it's coming from. Uh, you know, we I do use uh, some of the meats from ButcherBox. So ButcherBox mm-hmm. offers a wide array of, of meats from grass-fed animals and and that's uh, a lot of our meals at nighttime are uh, from, from ButcherBox. Uh, but that's interesting about the arsenic. You know, arsenic can uh, get concentrated in the ground where plants are grown in. So uh, if, if rice is grown in, in China or, or whatever plant is grown in China and that, that soil has arsenic in it, uh, I lived behind our house. We had like a, a peach orchard and, and apple orchards are notorious for this, for having high levels of arsenic just based on the chemicals, you know, that were used over time. And hmm. uh, So this is something to consider. Maybe it's something you're eating with the sardines uh, or maybe it was the sardines itself, <coughs> depending yeah, on what the sardines was, are eating. <laughs> yeah, the nutritionist was pretty convinced it was sardines when I cut them out in one way. Yeah, hmm. he was saying that it was probably just from pollution. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's really important to pick out, you know, where your food's coming from. So this from. company, you recommend Wild Planet? Yeah, they're, they're, it's fantastic. Are they farming it? Is yeah. that what they're doing? They're farming the sardines? Uh, yeah, they have. There's different methods that you can use that uh, would kind of put you in the category of sustainable farming for sardines. So it's, it's one of the few fishes that are really low on the spectrum of, of having heavy metals and things. So if you're, you know, there's... Women, I get this question a lot, like, you know, if, if a woman becomes pregnant, you know, should they stop eating fish? Should they stop eating, you know, uh, ahi tuna or right. swordfish and things? I would say, yeah, definitely the big predatory fish you probably, probably want to cut back on. Uh, I did take a couple courses in neurotoxicology where we went over, like, mercury poisoning and, and every possible chemical. And, and just the take-home message was, uh, for the normal person, probably not an issue, Uh you know, unless you're consuming really high levels. And in, in grad school, I was eating these big cans, like 12, I think there were 12 ounce cans of tuna fish. And there's like five servings per can. And I would eat like three cans a day. Like I would take that and add, I was fat phobic at the time, but it would be a chunk like tuna and I would put balsamic vinegar on it. And I would literally eat three of these 12 ounce cans a day. And that would be 15 servings of tuna per day. And I did that day in and day out. And uh, No ill effects. Uh, well, I never got tested at the time. So <laughs> nowadays, I tend to do a lot of blood work just to check different things. Right. Uh, but no overt signs of, you know, toxicity or anything. Uh, maybe like a little – someone uh, – one of the professors that I was 
doing something for she had or her friend had lost a lot of hair due to eating tuna that had high mercury and at the time like kind of had a lot of hair loss at the time it was also kind of a stressful period so maybe when I stopped eating it I noticed like this is back in my mid-20s now I haven't had like significant amount of hair loss since (laughs) since uh and a couple people have you know and actually that's one of the symptoms too of mercury toxicity oh wow weird tingling and feelings like kind of neurological effects so just something something to consider uh but getting tested is probably a good thing to do. Yeah, um, I've heard that from people that just consume ridiculous amounts of sushi. Yeah, but I would I would imagine like sushi, you're dealing with smaller portions yeah. of the actual fish itself. Yeah, it might be if you do that day in and day out. It's probably good to get tested, and and sometimes you know it may not show up in the blood in the serum. You might have to look at the, like the red blood cell because sometimes you know some of these uh, metals are more reflective of the levels on the on the red blood cells so there, or the hair too. So there's different ways that you can. You can measure it. I read that you uh, eat, was it canned oysters as well? Yeah. Yep. That's something I usually bring. I thought I think I brought on this trip too, like canned oysters. Uh, King Oscar. There's a few brands out there that I kind of vetted out for mm-hmm. things. And oysters are really rich in a lot of micronutrients that could, you could get depleted in on the ketogenic diet. So B12 is something. Uh, I do supplement magnesium too. That's How something. could you get B, um, B12 depletion? from ketogenic diet where would that come from well uh you know it could be due to uh sources of b12 that you're kind of eliminating through food choices on the ketogenic diet um b12 is basically an animal based um uh yeah for pretty much yeah and i've I've never met, or I think I did measure that once and it wasn't, but people have reported to me that it was. The thing that showed up on my blood work was lower, I was on the low end of magnesium and I was getting cramps at the time. And Mm. that's the only, you asked about side effects. So the only side effect that I experienced was cramps at nighttime, always between three and four in the morning. Hmm. And it would start in my foot and then start to creep up to my calf. And, or if I did like legs or something, sometimes my hamstrings. And then when I the magnesium supplementation uh, really prevented much of that. For have you me. ever used an isolation tank? No. One of the cool things about Heard isolation about tanks yeah. is that you get magnesium through the water. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, because the water is filled with uh, salt, and the salt oh, yeah. has magnesium in it. Yep. You know. I think Epsom there's salt. there's <coughs> pretty legit uh, science behind that. I was uh, traveling in. Um, in Israel, and I went to the Dead Sea, mm. and which is really high in magnesium, and it yeah. has a calming effect, uh, which is reportedly due to the very high magnesium levels and other salts that are in there. So the magnesium uh, is relatively small molecular weight. That anything with a molecular weight like under you know, three, four hundred, I think, can can get into your bloodstream. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's why people like those Epsom salt baths. I think that's yeah. really one of the things that relaxes people. Yep. Yeah, and Epsom salt baths is. You're talking about a very small amount of Epsom salt in comparison to a tank, which has my tank is yeah. a thousand pounds of Epsom salts in it and eleven inches of water. So because you're so wow. buoyant, you just and you, you do this it. daily at your house. No, not daily, but whenever I want, mm-hmm. you know, because it's in my basement. I just yeah. go down there and get into it. But it's uh, the relaxing effects is pretty profound. That's interesting. You know what? Uh, <coughs> it brings to mind most of the I've had at least a half dozen emails about doing Epsom salt baths from ALS patients mm. because ALS is associated with uh, a chemical called glutamate, which is excitatory amino acid transporter, and high magnesium levels can kind of mitigate some of the excitotoxic effects of high glutamate. 
and they were there's fasciculations that they get and twitching muscle twitching that they get and they found that you know dosing magnesium or these epsom salt baths you know higher in magnesium can calm them down and and also maybe mitigate some of the twitching that they had which is probably uh, a reflection of uh, uh, glutamate induced uh, neurotoxicity so the cells are dying they're releasing mm. glutamate so it may be neuroprotective in that way and it definitely you know i know magnesium you can feel it like if you take a legit source of magnesium that's bioavailable like magnesium glycinate or or other forms of magnesium you can really feel kind of a calming effect that mm. it has yeah it makes sense a lot of people like to take it before they go to bed yep yeah, but the uh, the tank is uh, an, just when you get out of there, your whole body just feels relaxed. I mean, I think part of it is because the zero gravity effect of floating and, and just you're you're floating calming. like you're it's, you're very buoyant, yeah. right? In this, because the water is very heavy, right? Mm-hmm. Like the like the the Dead Sea, like only maybe a third of your body is kind of floating in it, right? Yeah, or half it's of your essentially body. half your body. Essentially, mm-hmm. like your ears are underwater, but yeah. your face is above water. It's amazing. You got to try it. <clears throat> I'm a, a big proponent of it, but um. The um, ALS, is there a benefit in the ketogenic diet to for people with ALS? Yeah, that's another application. Uh, there's a guy, uh, Dr. Passanetti, and I think he's at uh, in Mount Sinai in New York. Uh, he's got a couple studies on this, looking at uh, caprylic triglyceride, which is a medium chain fatty acid. And he also, prior to, that's a clinical trial, I think it's ongoing now, but prior to that, he demonstrated in a mouse model of... Uh, of ALS, which is the SOD1 G93A mouse model, and it has a gene defect that mimics the familial form of ALS, which accounts for maybe about 10, at most 20% of, of ALS uh, pathologies. And he found that a ketogenic diet uh, improved motor function and some neurological scores. Uh, it did not improve overall survival, though. So mm-hmm. we actually followed up on that study with a therapy that we call the Deanna Protocol Therapy, after Deanna Tidone. And uh, her father, uh, Dr. Vincent Tidone, observed that his daughter responded remarkably well to a few supplements, which was arginine, alpha-ketoglutarate, uh, and uh, GABA and uh, uh, coenzyme Q10 uh, and a few things that we actually put into a supplement and we reproduced the same study using this gold standard mouse model and we looked at motor function, we looked at neurological score and then we looked at total like long-term survival too and we found that using medium chain triglycerides which was uh, a ketogenic fat with arginine alpha-ketoglutarate, which is something that's in pre-workout formulas. It's a vasodilator from the arginine. Uh, we used uh, GABA was in that, or phenibut, a phenylated form of GABA that crosses blood-brain barrier. And uh, and coenzyme Q10 in the form of idebenone, which is a little, kind of like the drug-like form of it. I think it's still available. You can get it online. It might be kind of a drug. Or ubiquinol, which is a powerful form. So those uh, supplements together, I think, offer are neuroprotective in a way. And it had a therapeutic and what I would call performance-enhancing effect on this ALS mouse model. And those supplements had a therapeutic effect on Deanna Tadone. I mean, there's other things in the what's called the Deanna Protocol. Uh, people interested in this can go to Winning the Fight Foundation. Uh, it's a Tampa-based ALS uh, 501c3 foundation. And you can sign up on the foundation, and they give you the actual protocol. And there's, like, more than 1,000 patients, you know, registered on this that are benefiting from it. The, and there's several peer-reviewed uh, studies on this. 
Uh, ideally, we'd like to get enough funding to do a, a human study, but the mouse work's pretty compelling, and it just it's just it it's an extension of work that has already been done, really, and further supporting. Uh, compelling support for this proof of concept for using a metabolic-based approach, like targeting energy metabolism, preserving mitochondrial function so the cells work better. Now, when you were talking about epileptic kids and um, supplementing their diet with ketone supplements, uh, you know, because a lot of them have a hard time following a ketogenic diet, can you get the same benefits of a ketogenic diet by following a standard American diet and supplementing with exogenous ketones? I doubt it at this time with the ones that are commercially available, but I do think that with some of the ketone esters in development right now, we've observed using a range of different animal models that uh, the thing is that these things are not very palatable, they're pricey to make, uh, but we're working with various companies and doing what's required for the FDA to be generally recognized as safe for some of these compounds. I don't uh, think they taste bad. Like I've heard people complain about like the, ketogenics. I didn't I, think it was prop- bad oh, at no. all. Ketogenics actually tastes pretty good. Yeah. Uh, don't let it sit. If you mix it up, that's one problem with a ketogenics. If you mix it up and let it sit, then it's like tastes like battery acid for, <laughs> for a while. But So I mix it up, and if you just keep it with some ice, ice cubes in it, you can probably yeah. keep it around for about a half hour. But I generally try to drink it pretty quick yeah, after I, don't I mix it up. Yeah, I have a problem with it at all. But yeah. some of them, some of them are nasty. Yeah. Uh, well, the ketone esters. So these are things that if I gave you right now, you would gag. You would not be able to, to drink it. Yeah. So. Somebody sent me some. Where is that jazz? Do we still have that laying around here? That little thing of ketone esters that some dude sent. It was in like a sealed uh, little foil sealed plastic thing. Huh. <clears throat> I don't think I did. I'd be curious. I know all the all oh, the people behind this. No, that's not it. Huh. It was here somewhere. Okay. This place is a mess. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so, like, if yeah. someone had a big bowl of pasta, and then yep. they took something like ketogenics, would that knock you back in the state of ketosis? Yeah, you could you could eat a bowl of pasta and then c- consume a ketogenics product and then test your test your blood ketones and it would look like you're on a strict ketogenic diet. That's uh, fascinating. A mild, like a what I would call a modified Atkins diet, whereas. So the ketone ester, you could eat a bowl of pasta and then take a ketone ester and it would look like you fasted for 10 days. So it puts you into starvation level ketosis. So interestingly, another application of ketones is that it lowers blood glucose. And we don't know why we're studying that right now, but... uh, and it may do it by your liver is like the main regulator of what your glucose is. So your liver has glycogen in it and it's constantly being broken down and kind of spilling glucose into uh, it, it may be affecting that process or it may be enhancing insulin sensitivity, which means you take ketones and your cells use the glucose that's there. It uh, becomes more readily available to the cells. There's greater uptake. So we're looking into precisely why, when you consume exogenous ketones, why glucose goes down. We've replicated it many times with different forms of ketones. So would that be a way for a person who maybe is just not so good at being disciplined with their diet to just throw it in there? Like, say, like, God, I want an up, up some ice cream, but I've been really good with my diet. Fuck it, I'll just have the ice cream and then have some ketogenics or something like that afterwards. Well, I firmly believe there's no shortcuts. Like, right. And I think of ketones, and I try to, I think I mentioned this on Tim Ferriss, too, and he put it in there, that ketones are just another source of energy. So if you have, if you're eating 2,000 calories of food and then taking lots of ketone supplements, you are eating a lot more than 2,000 calories of food because ketones right, are 
far as fat, but I mean, I as far as like gaining weight, but yeah. as far as like keeping your body into a state of ketosis, yeah. it actually does work. Absolutely. And the benefits <clears throat> of that would be uh, maybe not weight loss, but by elevating your blood ketone levels, uh, there's a lot of beneficial effects, even from a signaling standpoint, like completely independent of metabolism. We know that it's a... a a super fuel essentially for the brain that you can, you know, your brain cells can generate energy uh, from from ketones in a more efficient manner than, than glucose. That's in, in crazy. Ways. That's really hard for people to believe because that's the one thing that people always would say. You need glucose to fuel your brain. Under certain conditions. So there are a few stipulations to that. And I could get a little bit technical, but for example, I mean, obviously if you have glut one deficiency syndrome, you know, you are, you're transporting it, but there, your brain has a number of, of things that can prevent it from using glucose effectively. So in many cases, ketones would be the preferred source of fuel. For example, there may be like with Alzheimer's disease, or maybe if you, even if you have traumatic brain injury, there's an internalization of the GLUT3 transporter so that you have cells, right? And glucose is trying to get in, but the GLUT3 transporter isn't on the membrane. Or you can have uh, a dysregulation or an inhibition of pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, PDH complex. And that enzyme is really the gatekeeper. It's almost like the, it's the governor. It's the throttle that lets the glucose into uh, the cell to create, to feed into what we call anapleurotic pathways to drive the TCA cycle, the Krebs cycle. And that makes reduced intermediates that drive the electron transport chain to make ATP. So that it's like a gatekeeper. And ketones completely bypass that process. So if you have no GLUT3, if you have you know impaired activity of this PDH complex, which a lot of people who are you know, carbohydrate components say, well, you're inhibiting the PDH complex if you're on a ketogenic diet. And I don't think there's evidence of that. But the ketones essentially bypass those steps and can restore and preserve brain energy metabolism, even if those things are dis dysregulated or dysfunctional. And a number of pathologies, you know, make them dysfunctional. Uh, and it's just a general state of aging. It's thought that as we age, we have a proportional decrease in... Um, in glucose energy metabolism in the brain, but that's not the case with ketones. So as we age, the data that has been collected so far shows that we have essentially the same ketone energy metabolism as from young to adults. Wow. So that that's major implication. You can graph it out and you know, we've had speakers at our conference that did that and you can see kind of like a plateauing effect and a decrease in brain energy uh, uh, consumption from glucose, whereas with the ketones, uh, it bypasses many of the rate-limiting steps that are associated with uh, impaired glucose metabolism in the brain. It's almost hard to believe when you rattle off the laundry list of benefits of the ketogenic diet, you know, for a lot of people, they're like, well, how is this? It seems crazy. I mean, yeah. it seems like, it, it, well, it seems like everyone should be on it. And it seems crazy that so many benefits are attributable to this fat-based, fat-burning diet. There's a lot of benefits. I don't, you know, uh, like my wife does not eat. I mean, she eats a relatively high-carbohydrate diet but with sugar. But that's because people enjoy like that. it. That's because she enjoys it. And that's because her carbohydrate tolerance is really remarkably high. And some people do really well uh, on high carbs. And when you say that, you're, you're testing her? Uh 
Yeah, like, and well, I've tested her blood and her ketones too, and, and she can get rapidly into a state of ketosis. I mean, we're testing some products now for ketone technologies for our company and, uh, and various products, and she can, it's the first time I've actually seen her ketones levels up where mine are and sustain it over a period of time. And she's like, this is awesome. And so, this is just from taking a product? Uh, for taking, a, yeah, just f- formulation of, of specific products. Yeah, and... Uh, so there are a lot of benefits, uh, but it's just, I think of it as like one tool in a toolbox, you know, simple carbohydrate restriction, like it doesn't have to be a ketogenic diet, but simply restricting your carbohydrates is a powerful hammer, for example, for type 2 diabetes. And uh, Verda Health is doing more for the medical management of type 2 diabetes than any other entity that I know of. I mean, I think... Their goal is in the next decade to reverse 100 million cases of type 2 diabetes. Like our government spends way more, uh, it's like $200 billion of funding <laughs> for managing uh, diabetes. Uh, and, you know, NASA's budget is something like uh, like $19 billion per year or something like that. So it compare that. Wow. And the, uh, you know, we know that Type 2 diabetes, for example, which is a ma- an obesity, the major problem for type 2 diabetes is carbohydrate intolerance. So why would you, why would a, a registered dietitian administer a carbohydrate-based diet to a type 2 diabetes person who has a problem <laughs> with carbohydrate intolerance? Because and that's reflected in their elevated hemoglobin H1C or glucose levels or insulin levels. Uh, so, so Verda has created a platform uh, of people who, using an app, will allow you to uh, to follow adhere to carbohydrate restriction and a ketogenic diet, to essentially not just manage it, but just like completely reverse it. And I would, I think the numbers are something like 89, almost 90 percent of people from the data they collected so far and published. Almost 90% of people, maybe 89 or 87%, can either completely get off insulin or like reduce it down to very low levels just simply by using uh, a carbohydrate-restricted uh, ketogenic diet. And that has that's profound. I mean, imagine the number of people that can get off medication, you know, what that can do to the healthcare system, the healthcare burden of, you know, paying all these dollars for drug management of type 2 diabetes, which is going up to epidemic proportions. So, yeah, so, so if people are out there and they have type 2 diabetes, just go to Verta Health and you'll see uh, an amazing array of clinicians, uh, basic scientists, and registered dietitians that assist people for the medical management of uh, type 2 diabetes. It's just stunning. I mean, the, the yeah. list is... The I mean, lo- it's the lo- I was going to say, like, the low-hanging fruit is definitely type 2 diabetes, so I'm glad to see the field go into that direction. But for many, many years, many decades, the only application, when I got into this research, the only application was pediatric epilepsy. And then two years after that, it was like, it works for adult epilepsy. So it's taken so much time for the science to prove kind of what we already knew, right? That, Mm. you know, therapeutic ketosis was supplying ketones to the brain. That's an alternative form of energy. And obviously that has more implications than just uh, helping your brain for epilepsy. There's so many other applications. You know, when you're uncovering all this and when you're doing all this research and studying it and you're finding all these benefits, have you tried to figure out or contemplate like what is the cause like why is it so beneficial for your body to live off fats versus your body to live off glucose is this something 
that we evolved to live off fats? Is this like, is it a, a better primary source? Is it something that our, our body can exist off of glucose, but really we're designed to live off fats? Like, what is the cause? Well, <laughs> it's multi, I mean, there's many answers to that question, but I'll tell you kind of what I think. Uh, that many people do really well on a, a carbohydrate base with no overt signs of, you know, pathology. Especially right? really active people, right? Yeah. So I would, in that class, like, <laughs> I always kind of joke, like, the people that are most interested in the ketogenic diets, or many of them are athletes that contact me, uh, but a lot of a lot of pe- people have health problems too, uh, but, the, but the athletes are typically not the ones who necessarily need it, but right. they can benefit of it. I mean, a, a lot of, you know, if... There's football players out there and people that are predisposed to concussion or brain injury. I think it's really good to be on a ketogenic diet. That's kind of like a whole other area we can go into. Now, for athletes, mm-hmm. when you're talking about people that like maybe they don't need it for weight loss or they don't need it for a lot of – is it because – the massive amount of calories, calories that they're burning and their nutritional requirements almost mitigates the negative effect of having a glucose-based diet? Yeah, it, it really does come down to calorie control. So if you have a surplus amount of calories coming in, you know, even with an athlete, you're going to start to get some over, you know, metabolic effects and, and negative, you know, biomarkers kind right. of showing up. And if you do that chronically, it'll ultimately lead to chronic inflammation, maybe some, you know, brain fog and other things. Uh, What I have observed is that, you know, I mean, you're asking like, why what was your question like why aren't people not following this or what's the no, benefit no, my, my question was like because you're studying this so deeply like have you ever contemplated like what is the root cause like why are we so good at burning mm-hmm. fats why is it so yeah. beneficial there's so many health benefits and it seems like there's so many negative consequences of of having a high carbohydrate diet especially for sedentary individuals yeah i think you really to put this in context you have to think the negative effects from high carbohydrate diet are due to uh, a calorie surplus. So I think a carbohydrate-based diet could work fantastic for a lot of people who count their macros, who manage their calories. But people are horrible predictors or estimators of how many grams of carbohydrates. You know, they walk right. into the kitchen, they grab some grapes, they grab a chocolate. They don't. So that's why it's really good if they want to get a handle on this to optimize their total health and performance and things to really have an app where they can calculate their macros in an easy, you know, to do format like, you know, Avatar Nutrition does. Uh, So that's so I think when you are bolusing glucose or bolusing carbohydrates a couple meals a day, you have that scenario that I talked about. You have a a spike in glucose and a release of insulin. And for many people, which I had, was this postprandial dip in blood glucose where you'd go hypoglycemic after two or three hours, and that would have me searching for food again. I would get irritable, I would get sleepy, my performance would drop. When you go on, it doesn't even have to be like, uh, ketogenic diet, just low carb, can completely, in many cases, if not abolish, significantly attenuate that rise in glucose and that release in insulin. Uh, and it, you know, with a carbohydrate-based diet, you can throw in more fat and fiber and, and buffer that too. But a purely ketogenic diet is, you know, kind of non-glycemic. Like you don't have any rise in that. And the practical effects of that is that it tends to allow the person to control their appetite instead of their appetite kind of controlling them and appetite suppression and just 
kind of, and that's how it's thought that the ketogenic diet works too, is that you don't have these spikes in glucose and hormones and things like that that could set off a seizure, is that uh, the leading scientists in this field uh, really believe that it helps put the brain into a state of homeostasis better. And if there's less kind of energy spikes and less kind of noise in the system uh, from a physiological standpoint, that the brain's... Uh, the brain's energy system and the, 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 the neuropharmacology of the brain itself, the neurotransmitters, the balance of GABA to glutamate and, and uh, serotonin and other things will be balanced in a way that would make seizures much less likely to occur. So, and I think that's what it does from a, from a, a feeding behavior, from a neuroendocrine point of view, is that it helps to, when you have all these hormones and, and uh, metabolites you know, going all over in the blood, the ketogenic diet keeps it into a range where there's a lot less noise in the system. And you can see this uh, by a, a patient, a type 1 diabetes patient, for example, who goes from eating a high-carbohydrate diet to a ketogenic diet where their Dexcon continuous glucose measurement is all over the place. If you look at, you know, several days of data, and if they transition to a ketogenic diet, I mean, the highs, there's way few highs and way few lows, and it's within a tight range, and they stay within the range where they're optimized, I would say. So they're in a, a glucose range where they're optimized. And that's what happens. That's, you know, that happens, obviously, with a type 1 diabetic who's trying to chase the glucose with insulin. But for the average person, the same thing happens. And that's why a lot of people feel better. They have less cravings, and they're more likely to adhere and stick to their diet and not kind of fall off the wagon and kind of overeat and you have surplus calories. So so high carbohydrate diet is completely manageable in people who know how to manage their calories, but that's really hard for most people to do. So I think the, the app-based programs that are coming out are really, really handy. And they're, uh, I think they'll be kind of the wave of the future for people who want to optimize their their body composition and their performance and to have a keto option of that too, where you can titrate and optimize your keto diet. And then there's an AI system that tells you how to uh, improve those ratios over time to hit your goals. I think that's really the future. The cravings, uh, that, that's a huge factor. Not just the energy crash, but also the lack of hunger. It's, a, it's really weird. Like, I, mm -hmm. I always felt like if you didn't eat for a few hours, you just started getting, God, I got to eat. And you have this weird feeling. Yeah. But that weird feeling is entirely connected to glucose. Yeah. When, when you're on a fat-based, fat-burning diet, the, the, even knowing that you're hungry is a different knowing. It's like yeah. it's in the other room. Yeah. It's not like it's like next to you sitting on your shoulder yelling in your ear, come on, man, let's yeah. eat. You know, the, there's a frantic feeling that a lot of people get when... I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> My wife, I've seen it. You know, when she's hungry, we got to stop. We got to yeah. pull over. Like yeah. when she needs ice cream, I mean, it's, it's, I just, you know, give in and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to pull over. Uh, and I remember feeling that way too, when I would kind of go off the wagon and eat a half of a box of Toll House cookies. Uh, but yesterday I ate three packets of something called keto cookies. And uh, I put some in your, your little uh, gift mm. bag there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and these keto cookies, so I just, I had never eaten three packets <laughs> together, so I was curious, uh, let me, oh, that's Energy Bits. So What's this? Energy Bits is, I think, a fantastic spirulina. supplement. So spir Algae. spirulina has 
an enormous amount of research behind it, and uh, it's one of the products I used on the NASA Nemo mission because we didn't really have uh, access to fresh vegetables or phytonutrients down there. So this is a snickerdoodle, huh? Yeah, it's a snickerdoodle bar, and then there's a, a chocolate chip bar and a fudge a fudge chip bar. Where could one get uh, these? Uh, just go to ketocookie.com, and so they are. That's like my keto comfort food. So when I travel with that, I might have another box out there for you. So yeah. you have chocolate chip, you have snickerdoodle, you have fudge chip. Uh, so you can eat that. Typically, when if I eat like a Toll House chocolate chip cookie, I would have that crash that we were talking about. And I would be ravenous, you know, after. Mm. Uh, there you go. Pretty good. Uh, so no sugar. So it's completely like low glycemic. For me, they're like non-glycemic. Uh, so I measured my, my uh, glucose after... Uh, eating three packets of them because I went, uh, yeah, those are the guys behind it. So I actually just saw them at the Low Carb uh, USA conference where uh, a number of speakers there were on the show. Uh, Gary Taubes was there. Rob Wolf was there. I didn't get to speak to him because uh, it was just so busy. But Keto Cookie is, you know, one of those foods that's evolving out of this, you know, this kind of movement, I would say, that the ketogenic diet is becoming a lifestyle. So not something that's used for pediatric epilepsy, but something like the average person can follow to just feel better. And for me, I could eat a keto meal in the morning and I can hammer out 12 hours of work in the lab and not even get any cravings to eat at all. And that, for me, that translated into, you know, more grants, more publications, more work done in the lab. And I kind of attribute it in some way that, you know, my career has gotten a really big boost because I'm more cognitively uh, aware and resilient. Even during periods of like sleep deprivation, I can just work longer periods and I kind of utilize keto to my advantage in that way. That's really fascinating. I really had no idea about um, exogenous ketones improving mental function, like taking them to actually like it would be a good idea to take them before anything taxing. I'm going to try taking them before podcasts. And taking them before comedy shows or UFC events and see if maybe yeah. my brain fires better because, I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, my my wife was actually uh, – she spearheaded a program uh, looking at absence seizures. So a lot of people who have seizures don't have like tonic-clonic seizures, but they'll just look and stare into space and then wake up out of it. That's we me all day. <laughs> I'm, I'm having seizures, Jamie. I didn't even know. These cookies but, are good, man, but uh, they feel like an illusion. Like and a, a, you just got to try them. Try them. Mirage. Do you, do you have a glucose ketone measurement? Thing? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I, d- I did have that, but I have uh, a lot of calluses, and I was like, uh, I had to really stab the shit out of my right. fingers. Yeah, you do. I thought yeah. I had calluses. I got I got pretty bad calluses, yeah, but I, I think yeah, you got them. Uh, yeah. So uh, what was I going to say? Oh, so Is there a anxiety. Way to do it other than uh, glucose meter, like uh, the one that stabs you, because it wasn't really working that well. Not really. I mean, they say that, go to the side of your hand. I'm like, fuck. Man. Yeah, Can't so go to I just take an actual syringe, like needle, and just oh. plug it in. Hardcore, I have, bro. yeah. So <laughs> I just, I don't really feel it. I've done it so many times, but, uh, but yeah, taking exogenous ketones can help. We published a paper in Frontiers. Uh, it reduced anxiety behavior about twenty-five to thirty percent in in our rats. So they would go out into what's called an elevated plus maze into the open arm where they're like on a catwalk, mm-hmm. and they could fall off or be exposed to the environment. It typically produced a fear response, or they could run back into the little cave. And uh, the beta-hydroxybutyrate salt plus the medium-chain triglyceride combination actually reduced that fear behavior. Uh, Maybe it would be, I mean, I'm sure you're completely comfortable (laughs) being out on front of the stage 
Uh, but for people that have anxiety problems, which is a big part of people who have stress, it kind of exacerbates anxiety. Uh, I mean, I felt it early on in my career. I know that being in a state of ketosis just makes me more mellow. Well, you know, one thing that it would help me with is um, I bow hunt. Yeah. And bow hunting is... I used to bow hunt, yeah. Do you? Really? Yeah, my brother, was, uh, he was a big bow hunter. He writes for Peterson Bow no Hunting kidding. Magazine. Wow. And, uh, I saw Hoyt. I saw... Yeah, uh, yeah, we yeah, had, yeah. Uh, Hoyt Pro Force Extreme, I think, bows. Yeah, I grew oh, up in a in a bow. I grew up in a hunting family, oh, so okay. I quickly noticed some of the stuff out near. So um, that's probably one of the most stressful things I do. Like people yeah. think that like doing stand up is stressful, or live podcasts, or UFC yeah. broadcasts. Those are nothing compared to bow hunting. When like a, drawing back on a live animal, and your heart starts racing, pounding, and you start adrenaline yeah. rush. Yep, yep. I and people that. have target panic where you can't remember what you're doing, yeah. and you go into autopilot. And there's all sorts of methods to mitigate that yeah. by forcing your brain into a closed loop system instead of an open loop system, yep. repeating <laughs> mantras, going over different facets of your shot process. But maybe um, ketones and being in a ketogenic state, especially exogenous ketones before you hunt, would mitigate some of those issues. Definitely help. I mean, a bit, I think you've had them on the podcast, Wim Hof. Yeah. Like different breathing oh, yeah. methods. Oh, sure. Uh, something I'm getting into, uh, was talking with uh, Quest CEO last night uh, about Buteco. Uh, a guy in uh, Russia designed some some system that allows you it's a it's a program of breathing i have the app on my phone i haven't haven't used it yet but it allows you to increase your co2 threshold so the drive to breathe actually does not come from a lack of oxygen it uh there's co2 chemoreceptors on the ventral surface of your medulla in in your brainstem that sense co2 and when they sense co2 that that's your urge to breathe that's oh. your drive and then you have a backup uh sort of like a redundant mechanism the carotid bodies at the bifurcation of the common carotid artery right here will sense oxygen. It's kind of like more of a fail-safe. That's, I studied these things, you know, for my PhD and, and these neurons, like how they sense, how they sense things. But so you can increase your CO2 threshold over time using various breathing protocols. And that can create an enormous, uh, effect on kind of reducing anxiety in these situations where a big buck comes up and you're drawing back on it or in general, just the level of oxygenation that you have. So retaining some CO2, if you do it through training, can actually enhance the vasodilation effect and can maybe reverse even and hyperoxygenate systems in your body. So that's the theory. And there's some, there's quite a few studies behind it. I really have to delve into the studies, but uh, the Wim Hof method is one method. I've, I've been fascinated with him. I, I really want to meet him. Actually, oh, I, I, I want to. I town. would love that. He's I would. A great guy. I want to bring him to the lab and actually do some research on him. I'll set it up. <laughs> okay, I'll connect you guys. That would be awesome. Yeah, um, these cookies are like a mirage. Yeah, it's like you hold them; they have weight. They yeah, look yeah. like a cookie. You bite into them. You're like, this is going to be like eating a cookie. Yeah. And then you're chewing it, and it's almost like it vanishes, like fairy <laughs> dust. In front of your eyes. But it's good, though. Yeah, right? it's great. It's really no, no, good. don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm not saying it's a mirage like they're bullshit. I'm saying, like, um, it's a very strange texture to them. Yeah. Because obviously there's no grain. It's, and there's something about eating them and chewing them where your body goes, hey, uh, would you fucking lie to us? Where's yeah. the cookie, bro? 
<laughs> like it tastes good, but there's something about chewing it and eating it. It's like yeah. it vanishes. It's or pretty substantial too. There's yeah. a significant amount of fat in it. Uh, so I was a little free. Yeah, I was a little skeptical when they came. I was like, okay, because people send me so many products, and I I vet out what actually impacts you know my blood glucose and, and ketone levels, and then maybe about ten percent of the products that people send me I really like, like the energy bits here, the that spirulina tablets. I can take massive amounts and actually get a, what's a significant amount of protein, and there's absolutely no glycemic effect, and I'm getting huge amounts of phytonutrients in it. So I brought that on. Uh, you just eat these like a snack. I, I down uh, like 30 at a time. It says 33 servings, 1,000 tablets. Jesus. Yeah, so that would be like a month's supply. Uh, and, you know, you can chew them. They taste kind of grassy, and there's a you little, little kip in there. Yeah. <laughs> or you, if you don't chew them, if you just swallow them, you don't taste them. They don't taste bad. You know? And that's what I did. It tastes like um, almost like sesame seeds. Yeah, I like I like it. I yeah. like it. Actually, oh, no. sunflower seeds. The, That's what it tastes like. The lady, uh, Catherine, she was on uh, Shark Tank. And oh. actually, they kind of slammed her because I think she evaluated the company high. Or they didn't like the taste. That was the main reason that, that they didn't like it. So, I mean, guys like you and me and most guys would be totally fine with the taste. And the amount of nutrition that's in that and the density of that makes it an awesome food for things like special ops guys or mm. even even NASA. I mean, there's a lot of nutrition in that little bag right there. So it's I, stunning to me how much like mouth pleasure factors into people's lives. Like, absolutely, I don't like the taste. Well, something yeah. could be fantastic for you. Like like I expect that out of my seven year old. You yeah. know, she's like, eh, it tastes gross. I don't like it. I'm like, I get it. Yeah. You're seven. Well, but out of a 37-year-old, Jesus Christ. 90% of people really eat. It's a pleasurable thing to them, and yeah. they don't want to restrict that in any way, shape, or form. Well, so. that's crazy to me because you don't have to restrict it. Just for the most part, take yeah. in healthy yeah. nutrients. And things and like this, like this is not bad. Like, Jesus Christ, if this is the uh, most suffering you get in a day, <laughs> talk about first-world problems. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. these little energy bits. Man, they weren't the best thing I've ever had. I don't know what I'm going to do now. It's not yeah. bad. It's not bad well, at all. Well, I mean, I see you know, from the general consumer point of view, like I could see maybe, but once they know the science behind it, like uh, the right. CEO sent me a stack of research papers and they're all off of PubMed. And I started looking through them and then double checking on PubMed and realizing there's a lot of science behind this. And actually NASA was interested in algae and making capsules because it's a super, it's super high in protein, has all these phytonutrients and uh, you can, you know, grow it. You could you know, figure out a way to grow it in space and stuff. Uh, so I think really that's the future. Like things like keto cookie will be a gateway for people to say, okay, maybe I can go on this diet and I can have these chocolate chip cookies here too. But then eventually your palate changes over time right. and you don't crave those foods anymore like yeah, i don't crave that's never happened to me no. it's gotten close but man i smell some fresh bread or yeah. uh, a bowl of pasta like linguine with clams i'm in man but uh. you can maybe control yourself <laughs> a little bit better yeah you still crave it i don't actually crave that at all I'm i will good crave at controlling like myself yeah. sweets and chocolate maybe sometimes or ice like cream? A, not not so much I, I was a big ice cream guy they have not keto anymore. ice cream though don't they yeah, Chris they Bell. do. Oh yeah, yeah. Chris they Bell do. was eating some on his Instagram. So uh, the institute that I'm associated with, the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition (IHMC), it's run by the director is Ken Ford. He was a, a former director uh, in NASA, executive in NASA, and they have a James Beard Award-winning chef 
that they hired into IHMC, and he has a specific uh, keto ice cream recipe, which is using MCT and like a pinch of stevia. And when you eat the ice cream, I mean, it just blows your mind that this is ice cream that you could eat every day, a big bowl, and stay on a ketogenic diet. Wow. So these kinds of innovative, I saw, I call this innovative. You feel like you're eating ice cream? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, It's like really legit. Like my wife, my wife, she's really like the litmus test. So when I get products, I give uh, the last product I got was the keto brownie. So if you like Google keto brownie, it'll, it'll come up. And, you know, I give it to my wife and she was like, yeah, this is pretty good. But it had like a, a shell in it, which kind of ca- got caught on her teeth or whatever. Uh, and she loved the taste, but it was a little bit, uh, I think because of, she's so picky. It was like, oh, I liked it, but it just had a shell in it or whatever. But <laughs> keto brownie is like another food. And I, I see all these entrepreneurial guys kind of emerging on the scene and being very innovative in the way. I mean, it takes a long time to develop and test a product that you can eat that's low carb for one thing, and then that you could allows you to adhere to a ketogenic diet. Have you had a cave shake? You know what those are? I've heard about it. Local yeah. California that... company got a bunch in the fridge back oh, there. Oh yeah. Oh, maybe I can try one. Oh yeah, maybe. for sure, hundred yeah. okay. percent. I'll yeah. give you one right now if you want one. But uh, we'll wait till after the show. But okay. yeah, I'm big on those, man. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> those are giant. They're made yeah. with. Um, a lot of good stuff in there, but I think uh, a lot of it is coconut, coconut milk. And, yeah. Um, yeah. This keto ice cream company, what's it called again? Yeah. Actually, there's not a company that I know of yet. It's just uh, uh, I told them they need to create some IP around this this formula. But uh, it was uh, the the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, oh, the, the so chef there. Uh, he the, cooked it up himself? Yeah. He has a number of recipes because uh, the CEO there, uh, Ken Ford, I mean, he's – uh, a huge fan of the ketogenic diet and is how I got hooked up with him because he realizes that it enhances his cognition mm. <laughs> and performance and uh, has actually been a, a big help in moving things, you know, into government agencies and helping them acknowledge that this is uh, a very viable uh, form of uh, way to fuel the astronaut or fuel the special ops guy. So he's been kind of instrumental in that regard. And he has, you know, hired a, uh, a chef that cooks ketogenic and in a, in a gourmet fashion, a James Beard award-winning oh, chef, wow. which I didn't even know what that was until and then I looked it up and I was like, whoa, these are very high-level chefs that are specifically in his expertise, at least at the Institute, uh, is to create these ketogenic recipes that are like ultra gourmet and, and amazing to eat. So, what about uh, pasta? Is there like an almond flour-based pasta? Not that I've, you know, I've tried a lot of things, but uh, I would hesitate to recommend anything just because I have not been impressed enough to, uh, to really, there's some protein pasta out there that's a little bit low carb, but a lot of times yeah. they kind of fill you up with a lot of soluble fiber and you just become like a gas machine, you mm, know, it might be good sure. for your gut microbiome in some ways, but uh, you're feeding all the bugs in there. But uh, for a large part, like if you get... You know, every, we have a certain threshold for soluble fiber, which gets broken down into butyrate and other things in the gut. Uh, and if you exceed that, you just become, you know, a gas machine. And So and maybe it would be good in like a small side dish. Yeah, yeah. Like a little side. Yeah. Uh, so that's your weakness then? Pasta, right? so, yeah. And ice cream too? Or? No, I mean, I can go without ice cream. I'm fine. Sweets really don't get me that much. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's yeah. not something I massively crave, but I am a big fan of spaghetti. Yeah. It's a problem. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I think that it's just one of those things where I bet if I just stopped taking it for a long time, stop eating it for a long time, but that's been my cheap food for a while. Yeah. So if I uh, just 
cut it out of my system completely for like six months or something like that. I probably, you know, if you, there's a book that has ice cream, um, there's a recipe. Jeff Volek has a book. It's called The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance. And this will appeal to your crowd because uh, a lot of MMA guys, I refer the book and they say, this book was incredibly helpful to me. So The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance. And there's uh, a rest. There may be a pasta recipe in there. I know there's an ice cream recipe in there. That's not unlike the recipe I was just talking about. Mm. So, but the pasta thing, yeah, that would be, if, we, if someone could nail that down. That would be pretty good a yeah, technological that's a achievement. One, right? yeah. That would be filled with some weird stuff and that make it. You taste were just like in pasta. Italy, yeah. right? I saw the, yeah, some yeah. pictures. Where whereabouts? And did you have pasta and pizza? When I you went were off like a rocket. Yeah, yeah I, could put, <laughs> I got way off the yeah, diet. I do that when I was in Naples. I you know you got to have pizza. That yeah. was quite a while ago, but you know it's moderation too. So well, they also have different flour, and I talked yeah. to um, yes, they do. That's right. Maynard mm-hmm. um, Maynard Keenan from the band Tool also has a, an osteria, a restaurant, and a, um, a vineyard that he runs in Arizona. He's a mm-hmm. weird guy. But uh, he explained on the, post, on the uh, podcast rather that I did with him recently the difference between the pasta that we have today and the bread we have today and original heirloom wheat, which is yeah. less – it's lower yield per acre – and it has uh, less complex glutens in it. Yeah. And he's like, that is what, when people are talking about, like, the difference between how your body tolerates, like, certain gluten, whether it's gluten sensitivity or not. Mm-hmm. He's like, just, it's just a different feel. And I really noticed that when I was in Italy, like, when I would eat their pasta, I mean, it just, it tastes different. It feels different when it's going down. And I actually ordered a bunch of it from, yeah. uh, from Italy. And uh, I even cooked it at home, and I noticed the difference. And did, did you get any – you don't have any – so if I go uh, – which I don't okay, – if I go to the movie, sometimes I'll get popcorn and I'm completely okay, like eating popcorn. And then you know a day or two later, I'm back into ketosis really fast uh, without even exogenous ketones. But if I do eat pizza or pasta, which I did in the beginning when I would have like these cheat meals occasionally, uh, I would have some major GI issues because hmm. your body's – you know digestion assimilation transport of these things you're typically eating on a day-to-day and then you go without eating them it's like your body doesn't know know what to do with it but when i did go to italy and and we travel around all over the place my wife you know loves to travel uh and we were in naples and i ate maybe two or three pieces of pizza i had absolutely no problems whereas that in the u.s that would have bothered me and Maybe it was just uh, – it may have been the flour. Like I guarantee you it's the yeah. flour. It's a, it's a, just a different kind of flour. I think what they call – it's called double O flour. See if you can find that, Jamie. <clears throat> the flour that they use. And they'll specify for imported uh, wheat flour from Italy that it's a yeah. special type of flour and that that flour is essentially heirloom flour. Uh-huh. So the difference between like when you buy a tomato from the grocery store and it's pale – and bulletproof, and you can throw it down a flight of stairs, and it doesn't even yeah. get bruised. Versus heirloom yeah. tomatoes, which yeah. are almost like a fruit. I mean, it really is essentially a fruit. Yeah, and mm-hmm. they're juicy and very yeah. delicate and very, uh, very fragile as well. There it is. Is double O flour worth the price? Well, that's the. That's. I just pulled up one that had the right. name in it somewhere. Got it. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, that's my that's my big problem. But if I if someone does do that, if they say if they follow a ketogenic diet and uh, they eat a bowl of pasta, they're like, I can't help it, and then they take exogenous ketones and it knocks them back into ketosis, is that 
will it stay that way, even though the, the body digests that pasta and they'll be in ketosis again tomorrow? A good question. It won't. It'll stay that way based upon, uh, you know, the pharmacokinetic properties of the, the supplement you're consuming. So a ketone salt product, you know, the ones that are on the market, if it's mixed with a fat like medium chain triglyceride, uh, the keto OS system and the ketogenic system are BHB and MCT, you'll be sustained for longer. But if you do choose to try to get the benefits of ketones and you're on a carbohydrate based diet, you have to consume obviously more exogenous ketones to get the benefits of ketones. And but you could do that, though. So someone could theoretically do that, eat yeah, sandwiches yeah. and just take exogenous ketones and yeah. maintain pretty much the exact yeah. benefits? And Yeah, it, you can do that. And a lot of people are kind of confused. They're like, well, what's the body going to do with the glucose? Or what's right. the, the same thing? You could say the same thing. If you eat fat, you know, what's the body going to do with the glucose? Well, uh, well, interestingly, glucose goes down. And we don't actually know why. We think the liver kind of uh, sends out less. And these products are just not really like a huge amount of ketones, right? It's just enough to get you maybe into the one millimolar range. And we know that's enough to give your brain like a boost and give it's it one millimolar of ketones in your blood actually rep represents a pretty significant source of energy uh, that your brain can use and that your heart can use. We know the heart runs more efficiently off ketones. Uh, and probably more importantly is that the ketones function as signaling molecules that inhibit anti-inflammatory processes. Uh, mm. So Deep Dixit at Yale University did a study, actually, with one of the Wait ketones. Wait what's his name? His name is Deep Dixit. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never thought about it, yeah. Now, his, he's got a... You've never thought of that? I, I never, That's the difference between a scientist and a comedian well, right there. I'm like, wait a minute. Hold up. <laughs> I always look at his Indian name, but he always tells me to call him oh, Deep. But, uh, just call me Deep Dicks. Dicks it. Sorry. <laughs> he, he's a really good scientist and the leader in... Uh, in studying the effects of calorie restriction and uh, and ketones, and he observed that ketones, elevating ketones, has a signaling-like effect completely independent of the metabolic effect, which everybody thinks of ketones are a source of energy, they, but they are also like a hormone. They're like a drug. So they hit specific pathways. The pathway that he found uh, at the study at Yale was the NLRP3 inflammasome. You don't have to know that, but uh, when that flamasome is activated, it releases a lot of inflammatory cytokines in the body, which are, and that inflammasome is linked to a lot of age-related chronic diseases, too. So as we age, we have more systemic chronic inflammation. So I always say the people that have, that can benefit most from the ketogenic diet, you tend to be, get more insulin resistant and more trunk obesity, you know, mm. as we age. So they are people that will be uh, more receptive to the benefits of the ketogenic diet as we age. We become more carbohydrate intolerant as we age. But anyway, it's the beta hydroxybutyrate is functioning as an anti-inflammatory, like independent of the energy pathways. So he established that. And uh, it was actually a diet that I helped, you know, him formulate with exogenous ketones. And after that got published, uh, I got a number of uh, emails from pharmaceutical companies uh, because they wanted to sort of reverse engineer something that had the same effect as a ketone, but to put it into a drug. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, there. There's a pretty intense, you know, interest in the signaling properties of ketones in pharmaceutical companies, especially histone deacetylase inhibitors. So beta hydroxybutyrate, which is the ketone you measure from your blood, functions to as what we call this HDAC inhibitor, which affects genes. So you're actually turning on genes that are neuro, neuroprotective, that are cellular protective, that are linked to longevity pathways. 
So think about the rewards of developing a drug that did the same thing. But the you financial rewards. You can't patent beta-hydroxybutyrate right. in, well, in different forms, it maybe. It just shows you whenever something's good, someone comes along and tries to fuck with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know, you could say <clears throat> it's, you know, probably for the most part driven by greed, but there's a legitimate uh, impact on human health and sure, longevity. But wouldn't and, that just be better suited for the diet? Uh, absolutely. I think it's awesome that our body makes this, yeah. you know, natural metabolite. So the ketone salt products you buy on the market are, the ketones are derived from natural sources. So you are giving, you know, uh, uh, you are elevating a bioidentical form of a ketone that your body makes. Uh, there's a little bit of the debate because there's the D form of beta-hydroxybutyrate and the L form. So we call that racemic. If they're together, they're racemic. And the D form is kind of what your body makes, but it can also convert it to the L in certain tissues, and it can get really complicated. The important thing is that the salts that you consume that are commercially available, the D form is more likely to be broken down and utilized as a source of energy, whereas the L form probably sticks around more within the cell. And we know the L-form actually also functions in these signaling roles. So the L-form has anti-inflammatory effects. The L-form, you know, hits these signaling pathways. So the racemic mixtures that are in the salts may have extra benefits over just a pure D-form because the L-form can f kind of hang around and stimulate all these pathways we know are beneficial before it gets broken down into fuel. So there might be some sort of a benefit for people even on a strict ketogenic diet of taking exogenous ketones. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And I think, you know, we work really closely with uh, the Charlie Foundation, and I think the ketogenic diet should never be replaced with exogenous ketones at this point because the science, the research is not there yet to validate it. But we want to go in that direction because there's some kids who really, like, they're fat intolerant. They throw up when they eat, like, the ketogenic diet because it's too high in fat. And a portion of the kids are like that. Most kids can follow it. But, uh, but even for, like, childhood cancers and stuff, we, uh, I, I met with the, the, uh, the Max Love Project. Uh, he was on Jimmy Kimmel. Max, he was a, a brain tumor, a child with a brain tumor that is, uh, his family is treating them with a ketogenic diet. And they help many families around the area. And they have a foundation, just Google Max Love Project. And, uh, and his family is helping uh, Max adhere to and stick to a ketogenic diet as an adjuvant to his standard of care. So not a replacement. The ketogenic diet does work remarkably well for some people as maybe a standalone therapy for cancer and has anti-cancer effects. But as an adjuvant to the standard of care, it's remarkably effective. And they're working with, uh, I think, with Orange County. Yeah, so they have a lifestyle medicine uh, program at Children's Hospital in Orange County where they're helping a wide variety of families who have kids with, with cancer uh, stick to and adhere to a ketogenic diet as part of a wellness program after they went through their cancer treatment. Because if you're a child and you get the standard chemotherapy, you are kind of left in a situation where you're far more likely to have a lot of different health, uh, negative health consequences after that because the chemotherapy wipes out your immune system and can create, you know, additional mutations. So there's kind of like a fallout from the from the standard of care. And being on a ketogenic diet can be cellular protected, can help you as a neoadjuvant and and after, you know, before standard of care and even after standard of care help you recover 
and get your body back into like a detoxified state, if you want to use that term. That's amazing. Now, how many uh, cancer research places are adopting this? I mean, it seems like uh, that would be gigantic. And this is yep. a big shift over to standard care of just a few few years ago, right? Yeah. So the idea is, and, and we wrote uh, a grant uh, with the Moffitt Cancer Institute, which is a, a t- like a tier one cancer research center. I mean, they essentially reached out to us and say there's there's significant interest in this from the National Cancer Institute and National uh NIH, National Institutes of Health, to use the ketogenic diet as an adjuvant at this point, instead of replacing standard of care, which uh, only in situations where the standard of care is not effective should that be the case, but as an adjuvant to further enhance the efficacy of the standard of care. So the ketogenic diet we know limits glucose availability availability to the tumor, which requires the glucose for growth and proliferation. It decreases insulin, I talked about, and insulin signaling drives cancer growth, and it also elevates ketones. And ketones may have an anti-cancer effect, and for the most part, especially in very aggressive tumors that have dysregulated mitochondria, they can't use the ketones for fuel uh, nearly as well as they do like fuels like uh, glucose and, and maybe even glutamine, amino acid. So it enhances the standard of care and helps them, uh, actually protects them from the healthy cells from the radiation damage from the standard. It sensitizes the tumor to radiation and kills off more tumor and it protects your healthy cells. So my colleague, Adrian Sheck at the Barrow Neurological Institute has done some remarkable work in animal models showing this and that has translated into uh, a human study and actually garnered more interest in this area to use the ketogenic diet as an adjuvant, I think in some cases where the standard of care has failed for glioblastoma or advanced metastatic cancer, I think the the ketogenic diet can kind of be a base therapy for a more comprehensive metabolic-based program. And we wrote uh, an article called The Press Pulse, where the ketogenic diet and maybe something like metformin and other drugs can can be used to weaken the cancer and limit its fuel source. And then you can kind of come in with more, maybe more aggressive ways like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, which can reverse tumor hypoxia or various uh, low-dose chemo regimens. So you weaken the cancer, you know, you put your body into a state of ketosis, and then you come in and pulse at predetermined time points, maybe every three weeks, a therapy in a much lower dosing regimen to gradually knock down and reduce the tumor volume over time. And you do it in a more gradual way instead of going in there, you know, with surgery, radiation, and chemo, which is kind of like slash and burn, and it leaves the patient. The patient coming out of that therapy is much, much weaker than when they came in. So a a therapy can be developed that when the patient comes in and they come out the other side, they're actually in more robust health. We know that they can, you know, we can do that. That's incredible. That's possible from a theoretical standpoint, you know, with various research being done in animal models and what we know about nutrition and physiology, that can be done. It's just going to take some time to do it. It's just so interesting when you talk about the shift of information. I mean, when you were in college being fat phobic, you know, to now being like one of the premier guys that's out here preaching the benefits of the ketogenic diet and then seeing, you know, this, I mean, up until really recently, cancer research always depended upon these you know, chemotherapy and radiation and yeah. all these different standards that everyone's been having success with. But the idea that you could actually make a person healthier through the ketogenic diet and hyperbaric chambers and things along those lines, 
That's uh, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's just. And, yeah, hyperbaric oxygen therapy actually is FDA approved for things like radiation necrosis. Like when you have radiation, you know, on a tumor, you have a lot of necrotic tissue, and patients would undergo hyperbaric oxygen for radiation necrosis. And you know, I would I would go to these uh, various conferences over the years and talk to these physicians, and these patients would make remarkable recoveries. You know, even after they have the therapy, and it seemed like something else was going kind of going on here, and. Uh, and if I go back early in my work, I, I mentioned that we developed these technologies through our work with the Department of Defense and when the Office of where we, we build a hyperbaric chamber and then we buy an off-the-shelf microscope and install it inside the chamber and then we close it up and then we pressurize it to simulate you know what a dive would be while we're looking at the mitochondria and, and even the cells. And I did that with like healthy cells and neurons and we did it with a, a glioblastoma cell line and we noticed that the cells were exploding with high levels of oxygen. I didn't know what I was seeing at the time, but I looked into it more and started contacting some of the leaders in the field. And, uh, and they reported, uh, one of them was Thomas Seyfried in Boston College. Uh, and he was a, a neurogenetics professor at Yale University and then had moved to Boston to expand a, a ketogenic diet program for cancer. And he told me, you know, what you're observing is damaged mitochondria from cancer cells, which have damaged mitochondria. And if you give them more oxygen, it will produce proportionally more reactive oxygen species. And that oxidative stress would essentially trigger uh, necrosis and apoptosis in the cells. So there'd be all the cell death at a level of oxygen that was relatively non-toxic to the healthy cells. So, and then we did some work with ketones and saw that ketones were stopping the growth of cancer too. So we had this idea of using, you know, nutritional ketosis plus hyperbaric oxygen uh, and studying that in a mouse model uh, of cancer. And, uh, and we've got some remarkable results that we published. And this is, uh, you know, patients are doing this kind of uh, in an off-label way. Uh, they're doing the ketogenic diet. But now we have, if we go to clinicaltrials.gov, and you just look up ketogenic diet, you see more than a dozen studies. You know, so when I got into this, there was no studies. So now there's been uh, an interest and in even maybe people like jumping on the bandwagon of, you know, if they have a particular drug, will the ketogenic diet enhance it? Or let's see if it enhances the standard of care. Or let's see where standard of care failed if we can get these patients on this metabolic therapy and see if we can help them with quality of life. It's so exciting. I mean, it's just really amazing, exciting stuff. It's so uh, it's so interesting seeing something like this emerge, you know, relatively late. Yeah. In, in the terms of like medicine and science, I mean, 2017, we were talking about something that's diet. Yep. So just if you Google like ketogenic diet in a Google search around 2012, it's down here, and something happened around 2013 or 14 where it just skyrocketed. What was that? Do you know? I have no idea. I mean, I was on Tim Ferriss and, and other things, but a lot of my colleagues. When, when too, were you on Tim's show? Uh, probably dating back like uh, to 2014. That's probably maybe it. Maybe 20. That could be. It, but it's really my For colleagues. Sure. I mean, there's uh, so many being humble. Stop well, it. you know, I'm sure your colleagues have a lot to do with it, but it, as far as like the impact of the yeah, reach of something, the a podcast, the impact that a podcast has in terms of like the amount of people that are going to right. Google something is probably yeah. many, many magnitudes greater than anything anybody is doing. And, you know, from a professor or, you know, some, I realize scientist. that now. Yeah. So, and I, I thank you for le you oh, know, letting pleasure. me have this platform, but uh, I'm excited. I, I almost feel like there's guys like the guy that got me into this was Dr. Jung Rowe. And he was at Barrow Neurological Institute. He mentored 
my colleague Adrian Sheck into looking at ketones for glioblastoma. He runs the pediatric center in Calgary right now. Uh, but Dr. Eric Kossoff from uh, Johns Hopkins was a big, big help to me. Uh, a number of people, I feel like they should have this platform, but you know, they're, they're so busy, they don't do podcasts. But I realized early, early on, it was really important to get the message out because it does no good, you know, if you're not hitting a big target. And what I focused on was not just one application, but I mean, we do everything from wound healing to these genetic diseases, to cancer, to various seizure disorders. So I realized this was a lot bigger than just pediatric epilepsy. And uh, it's and, great. It sounds yeah. like it's the only way you should eat. It is. I mean, I don't, you know, tell everybody they should eat ketogenic, but I definitely feel that they should at least go into ketosis a couple times a year, if not for just longevity effects, for anti-inflammatory effects. When uh, when things pop up and we're under stress, like uh, I had an email yesterday, a person had severe shingles or severe like uh, outbreaks of uh, even the like uh, fever blisters or something like that, or cold sores. And if they just fast and do the ketogenic diet, uh, it suppresses that. Or if mm. the, when they, since they've been on the ketogenic diet, they had, you know, profound suppression of some viral disorders that when the virus, when there's viral shedding and there's, you know, you're affected by the virus, it causes profound uh, in inflammation and neuroinflammation. So it kind of starts with a headache and then it will kind of lead to the itchiness or whatever associated with shingles. But they described it very elegant, you know, elegantly in an email. And it was very clear, you know, before and after since they've been doing the ketogenic diet it had a profound effect, even more so than the drugs, antiviral drugs that they're taking. So even something like uh, HIV, which contributes to neuroinflammation and, and even different types of, of cancers like uh, Kaposi sarcoma, I think, uh, being, being in a state of nutritional ketosis could probably offer a lot of benefits to HIV patients that really struggle, you know, with some uh, symptoms that are associated with, you know, inflammation and, and other things associated. So this is another path we're going into. So some of those researchers have reached out to us and say, hey, the NIH has a proposal for this. Let's write a grant together. Mm. So I'm in the, like, it's been, it's crazy because I only have such, so much of a bandwidth, but people from Ivy League institutions are reaching out to me and saying, hey, can you help us formulate a ketogenic diet or can we use your ketone supplement to do a study on things that I never thought, you know, uh, nutritional ketosis would be applied to. Now, what about wound healing? You brought up wound healing. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, one of my students, uh, Dr. Shannon Kessel, she actually works for the Epigenics uh, Foundation now, helping the dogs at the Keto Pet Sanctuary. She did her uh, PhD on the effects of ketones on a wound healing model. And the model that we used was uh, and essentially, you know, the back of a rat, hopefully there's, you know, animal protection people, but, but in describing what we do, we basically have a wound that's a pretty, pretty nasty wound on the back of a rat where one side is ischemic, it lacks significant blood flow, and the other side is non-ischemic, and then, which has normal blood flow, and there's like a chunk of tissue kind of taken out, and then we look to see how fast that wound closes up right over time and we do it in young animals and we do it in aged animals and we take animals and then we feed them a standard rodent chow which is high carbohydrate rodent chow and then we have a number of different groups where we give them various types of ketone supplements and we found that uh, 
admitted that the ketone supplements enhance the wound healing, not only in the aged, which was pretty remarkable and ischemic, but also in the young had a been. So it was like for the young, healthy guy uh, that has a cut or a wound on the battlefield or something like that, it can help that wound heal up faster. And it's doing it through a variety of mechanisms. Probably uh, the wound itself is often uh, the, the wound tissue is deficient in ATP, the energy source, because the blood can't get to it. Right. So the ketones can restore like 90 percent of it has 90 percent less ATP in some cases with ischemic wounds. The ketones have the ability to like we think thin out the blood and be able to get to that wound tissue that's lacking oxygen and blood flow. And not only does it restore the energy to the wound healing, which can allow cells to replicate and, and heal up the wound faster, but I talked about the anti-inflammatory effects. So persistent chronic inflammation can prevent the wound from healing up. And by suppressing some of the inflammatory pathways, that can kind of open the gate on the activity of various growth factors and healing processes that can heal the wound up. Uh, and it seems to be, you know, pretty profound in the age, but also happens in the young. Now, this is just taking exogenous pro- uh, ketones, yeah. and it's not even standard chow from rodents. Standard chow. So we didn't want to kind of, you know, messy up the the data in any way. We actually should have done, a, well, if we had the funding, we could have done a ketogenic diet plus ketone supplementation. And you think that would be but, even better? Yeah, I, I definitely think it would because the ketogenic diet alone suppresses some of these inflammatory components that that is associated with impaired wound healing, mm. especially impaired wound healing in like a diabetic model. Oh, so, right. so I talked about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. The main application is that is for diabetic wounds that just don't heal up because the oxygen and right. glucose doesn't get to it. Uh, so in the diabetic wound, the problem is that uh, it's really a blood flow pl- problem. And we did... To answer that question to determine if it was blood flow, we did a Doppler blood flow analysis of the blood flow into wound and showed that it was something like a 25 or 30% increase in blood flow to the wound when we induced acute ketosis. So we gavaged. That's incredible. We, you know, we stimulate you know, ketosis that would mimic ketogenic diet or fasting, and then we do uh, uh, a Doppler blood flow analysis, and we show a pretty remarkable increase in, in That's blood flow. That's a huge increase. Yeah, that's I mean, that seems like that would be the move for someone who's recovering from some sort of a surgery or something like that hyperbaric chamber. Yeah. Combined with ketosis. Yeah. Ketogenic supplements. And for the VA, my collaborator uh, on this project, uh, Dr. Lisa Gould, at one time she was the uh, she was the president of the Wound Healing Society. And I mean, even she she was like, this is really remarkable. (laughs) I mean, to have someone of her stature, she's an MD, Ph.D., uh, really comment that this is profound, you know, effect on wound healing really motivated us to, to follow up on this. But uh, we have not gotten funding after this. So we really need to keep working because we need to follow up on this study uh, and get this as a legitimate wound. Heal- a lot of people are trying to enhance the wound healing process by putting things on the wound, you know, yeah. but we're wound healing is enhanced if you alter and optimize your metabolic physiology that promotes, you know, substrate and oxygenation to the wound, you know, and that's what ketones do. I mean, you have a vasodilation effect. There's a big increase in adenosine. Adenosine is a pretty profound vasodilator. So you have a vasodilation that's improving blood flow to the area where there's not only glucose in there, but there's ketones and the ketones help restore the energy in that wound that is sufficiently depressed 
from lack of blood flow, and it's promoting or reducing a lot of the inflammatory things that preventing it from healing in the first place. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this was really like it was presented at the Wound Healing Society and they were a lot of people were floored by it. So it's Shannon has uh, my student has went and moved on and doing postdoctoral you know, work at another place. But I really need to follow up on that. We have a lot of projects, you know, we're trying to process in parallel like right now. But uh, yeah, I need another student to because to, that may have been, you know, that and. You know, some of the motor function, glucose lowering, and uh, anti-anxiety effects are all things that kind of jumped out of the data from us that I, like, never would have expected. You know, I I came in this to look at seizures. Now, what was the hard data in terms of, like, what is the percentage of increase in healing across the board with the the rats? So if we look at time, time for that wound to Mm -hmm. close and heal up, it's about 20, 20 to 25 percent. That's significant. Yeah, so that, and yeah. that mirrors the amount of blood flow that you were talking about, this, the in- increase in blood flow being it, about 20%. It does. I don't know if you could draw a direct correlation to that. But obviously, if you have improved blood flow, that's getting nutrition to the wound. Uh, and we know that that blood has ketones in it, which have anti-inflammatory effects and things like... You know, it stimulates uh, the HDAC, HDAC1 and 2, which stimulates uh, superoxide dismutase and other antioxidant enzymes, which are often dysregulated, you know, at the wound site. Mm -hmm. So it's doing a lot of not only just restoring oxygenation and blood flow, but it's having like drug-like effects. These metabolites are really like signaling molecules, and it makes sense. Like, you know, if we're in a state of starvation ketosis, the ketones would have, you know, be telling the brain to do certain things and altering different neuropharmacological pathways that should be altering our, you know, behavior in ways. You don't want to, the person that is deprived of food and becomes tired from hypoglycemia and can't is the person that's going to die. So the people that survived in the absence of food availability were the ones that became more lucid and clear and were able to go and forage or hunt down the animal and kill it and eat it. So we are hardwired. I mean, to answer your question, I think a while back you asked, you know, why, why do we have ketones? Why? I think it's an evolutionarily hardwired system that uh, is, yeah, just built into our DNA. And, uh, you know, with the advent of carbohydrates and frequent feedings and, you know, a deli on every corner here, we've largely silenced that genetic program that becomes activated upon food deprivation that can stimulate a host of beneficial things from extension of longevity to autophagy. And I know Rhonda Patrick, mm. you know, I'm a big fan of her. She's talked about this uh, quite a lot. Yeah, she's awesome. And uh, yeah, she's super awesome. Uh, she actually visited the lab and we did a podcast oh, really? with oh, her amazing. at our lab. Yeah, yeah. She's she great. scares the shit out of me. <laughs> Every time I talk to her, I'm like, I'm basically a monkey. That knows the same language as her. <laughs> She's like an encyclopedia of information. So, uh, and she always comes prepared. So I came prepared. I was like, oh, yeah, I should cool. do what Rhonda does. So I wrote down like some notes here. I probably, there's probably things I'll forget. But, um, but yeah, so yeah, it, it's, it's a system that typically was activated in the normal person, you know, uh, during periods of millennia hunger. ago. Yeah. yeah. And which that, actually enhanced your concentration. Absolutely. You know, it's yep. one of the things to, to go back to the hunting thing. My friend, Remy Warren, who's a pretty famous, uh, hunter. And one of, one of the things that he says, and he's always said this, that he likes to hunt hungry. And one yeah. of the things he does, he does these back punch, back country, uh, hunting trips solo yeah. and he purposely brings too little food 
Yeah. Uh-huh. And one of the things that he's found over his many years is that when he is actually hungry, yeah. he is more tuned in and he does a yeah. better job of understanding what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Like the yeah. first time I actually started experimenting with fasting or even a calorie restricted ketogenic diet, I took a walk around my neighborhood at the time. And it's like my whole nostrils opened up. I could smell things. I could mm. hear things. I was more lucid in ways I had not been before. Uh, and I even fasted for seven days and was able to, you know, give a lecture and train in the gym and lift weights that were not hardly much lower than what I typically do. So I probably couldn't do, you know, it was just at seven day p- point after no calories. I was starting no to feel. No calories at all. No calories after seven days. Just yeah. water? Just water and some, uh, like, uh, a bullion cube. So some electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and lots of water. And I allow myself uh, about a third of the coffee that I would typically drink. So I'd have a small cup of coffee in the morning. And I got a ton of stuff done during that week. Like I had, you know, because I didn't have to to make my food. I didn't have to clean up my food. I didn't have time eating you know, the food. So How I saved a lot of time. Uh, I think I lost eight to nine pounds and then within a week or two, it, it, it all came back again. You know, a lot of it's, right. you're, you're holding glycogen and, and you lose glycogen. But, uh, in regards to, you know, at the time, uh, like my deadlift strength was maybe eight reps for eight or 10 reps with like 565. And I was able to do 10 easy reps with five plates on each side, which is about 500, uh, and, you know, typically going into this, I was paranoid when I was, you know, I followed, I, I listened to Dorian Yates's podcast and I was a huge follower of Dorian Yates in 1994 and I was eating. So I was eating four to six meals a day with shakes in between. And I remember even having like uh, nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the nightmare. Like the nightmare would be, I didn't have like food on me after two hours. Like I would have to eat like every two. I was so obsessed with getting bigger and stronger and so for me to fast seven days and to be out of my comfort zone, that was like a big step for me. So I kind of just did it to mentally liberate myself from chronic overfeeding <laughs> and things. And because I, was, I had just read and studied George Cahill and the Harvard Medical School study where they fasted for 40 days mm-hmm. and looking at you know, all the parameters on that. And I was like, it's not going to kill me. It's probably going to do me well. And uh, the more I did it, the second and third day were, were kind of hard for me. But after like the fifth day, it became, it was bizarre. It became like really easy. And I was just kind of like floating around, like, like my body had no inflammation. Uh, I wasn't buzzing like with energy, but I was very lucid and I didn't feel like I needed to be buzzed. Like I, I realized I'm so much better. A lot of times I feel like I need to drink coffee to amp up to be my best, mm-hmm. but I was my best when my brain was really calm and I was able to put thoughts together and I wrote a whole lot of uh, research proposals, which later became funded, you know, and I got probably of the proposals I really worked on, I probably got over a million dollars of funding during that time. I really intensely worked on on various proposals because I just transitioned to like a tenure track position. So it allowed me to work on manuscripts and proposals and just put thoughts together that maybe I otherwise either wouldn't have the time to or the mental kind of resources to get into that that seems state so of counterintuitive that you have it more does. mental resources with less calories it does i mean you know i was burning my body fat for fuel primarily probably lost a little bit of muscle but that fuel that fat was becoming ketones and that my brain had switched over i was doing low carb but not really full full keto at the time uh but it really it's like quieted my brain in a way that i was able to uh 
really, maybe I have like mild, you know, ADHD because I like to do so many different things, but it quieted my mind and I was able to wake up like every morning I was waking up a lot earlier than normal, like 435 and I typically sleep till like seven, but I was able to like wake up and just focus and get a ton of work done the first three or four hours. And then, then I would go into work actually and just, you know, meet with my students or teach or do whatever I had to do. But I just remember getting a ton of work done during that period. I've never reproduced it. I never went back. And, but I did a whole bunch of, of blood work on me to give, you know, a little bit of insight at, as to what's going on during, uh, during the fasting stage. And everything was really positive. You know, there was a big, uh, my insulin was really low at the time. My glucose was really low. I got down to like 25 at one point because I was experimenting with a couple different things. And my ketones were really high my ketones were like double what my glucose was at a couple time points during mm. that so it's an issue i would i would encourage people especially maybe people that are prone to cancer or people who have had cancer in the past and maybe had treated and are kind of in a state of remission uh if you go if you get your body into that what we call the metabolic zone where the level of ketones are higher than the level of glucose that puts tremendous metabolic stress on cancer cells or precancer cells that have uh, a huge appetite for glucose. So, and that contribute, can, can initiate autophagy. So, so even people who do not have cancer, but yeah. perhaps, you know, want to just make sure they're holding off of it as a preventative maintenance. Yep. And I think it can stimulate, almost purge your body of cancer cells that are weakened by in this fasted state and also precancerous cells that may be in the transition of, trans, you know, de-differentiating into this, you know, cancer-like cell. It, these cells are very energy demanding, especially if they're replicating. And if you deprive them of energy, the quote-unquote energy crisis signal that these cells receive can, can initiate uh, program cell death, uh, we call apoptosis and autophagy. And that's the benefit of this. It's almost like housekeeping. So think about it, you know, you accumulate a lot of, you know, dead cells that are kind of sluggish, your mitochondria are kind of sluggish, and then you fast for a week and it's like reboot. It's like uh, setting, wow. it's like a reset button. So have you, did you, um, I, I had, I did a podcast with Rob Wolf where he was talking about yeah, this one guy podcast. who went for a whole year without yeah. eating. Did I, you have you paid yeah, attention to that case? Not not only did I pay attention to it, I've presented that at a number of different meetings and people people say bullshit, but this is it's actually uh it's in uh oh man, I think I I may have had it. I was going to actually show it at this uh at this meeting, but I think I took the slide out. I had well, it in the back. Let's just tell people what this guy did. Not only did he lose 382 days. <laughs> Not only did he lose a tremendous amount of weight, he went from being morbidly obese to being like a normal sized person, but here's the big one. The skin shrank. Yeah, too, yeah, that's which right. Did. Normally when to people, the most part. Yeah. yeah for the mm -hmm. most part. Yep. I mean significantly. Where mm -hmm. most people have to when you're that big and you shrink down to a normal sized person, they have to cut your skin or you just walk around like a flying squirrel. Yeah. I mean you have like this crazy extra skin, right? Yeah. yeah well this yeah. guy, somehow or another, through this three hundred and eighty plus days of fasting, his body shrank accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that's he was about amazing. 500 pounds. Actually, C Travis Christofferson and I wrote a blog article, and it was part one, two, and three, the history of the ketogenic diet, part one, two, and three, and it's on Rob Wolf's website. So if you just Google the history of the ketogenic diet and land on Rob's website, you'll have, I think we talk about the story mm -hmm. in there. 
Uh, it's a remarkable story. Yeah, the guy was like 500 pounds, and he fasted for like 381 days or 82 days, and he went down to 190 pounds. And the remarkable thing is that he sustained that over. I mean, he maybe went ba- went back up uh, like five or six pounds, but largely sustained that weight loss That's over time. So he was running completely off fat, the fat that he had, you know, stored up. And uh, and he was studied pretty intensely. And the thing that came out of the data was uh, there was a pretty significant drop in magnesium. So that actually convinced me, yeah, I definitely uh, should probably maybe supplement magnesium. Was he I was supplementing fasting. anything, any vitamins? He, or They did give him an electrolyte. So it's in the medical records. And I dug into this as, as much as we could. Uh, his glucose levels got down to like 20 or 25 a couple times and, and, and maintained it. He was given potassium tablets to keep his heart healthy think, and multivitamins yeah. every day. Yep. Um, is this Rob have you ever done, um, is it Rob's? No, it's okay. another website. Yeah, yeah. I I think I've seen this. But yeah, fasted 382 days. Uh, Incredible. <laughs> Lost 275.5 yeah. pounds. Now, who was calling yeah. bullshit on this? Well, I, I did present it to uh, like a mainstream, you know, clinicians. Even and they were scoffing. The, well, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's actually really funny. Like the first, it might have been the American Epilepsy Society where they, they kind of marginalized the ketogenic diet. Or it really? may have been another. It might have been the American neurology. Epilepsy Society. At the time, they're warming up to it just because the data, they can't, you know, they can't turn their back on the data because data is data. So there's right. a, a massive amount of data emerging that this should, uh, this is grossly underutilized and should be really the standard of care, even the frontline therapy. Like we all kind of realize that, but neurologists would have to have, you know, a sidekick registered dietitian or whatever. But, but so during the time, one of my first presentations was to uh, medical doctors, you know, that were in it for CME credits and things things like that, like just standard conventional. And I talked about, you know, towards the end, I was like, well, I follow the ketogenic diet myself. And they're like, they're like gas. They're like, oh, what's wrong with you? It's like when I explained to them that I was normal in the question answering after, mm-hmm. they're like, well, why do you do it? What and year it's was like, this? are you okay? Um, this is going back <laughs> like 2009 That's or 10. fairly recently. Yeah. Seven years was, ago. It was really bizarre to them that someone would actually follow the ketogenic diet. And I was doing like the classical, I was trying to do like the, you know, the, I got 90? the the Hopkins protocol. Mm-hmm. I was using Eric Kossoff's book on the on the Hopkins. So ninety eight and two is it? Uh, I was I was about eighty. I was a three to one, so it was like eighty five mm. to eighty eight percent fat, and uh, I was sticking to it. And uh, yeah, so people really just think it's really bizarre if you don't have a severe neurological problem to be at the time. And that's now that's just evidence of how mainstream, because you you know you see it in in mass media. You know, athletes going on quote unquote mm. the ketogenic diet. I'd question whether they're actually ketogenic. Uh, they need to me- measure their ketones to really. So the ketogenic diet, you're in ketosis by virtue by the definition that your blood ketones are elevated above 0.5 millimolar, and typically most people that's pretty hard to achieve. If you're up to one millimolar, which is like mild ketosis. You take 100 people out of the population that eat the standard American diet, maybe one, maybe two people will achieve that if they, like, go all day without eating or something. Like, it really takes a while to achieve it. So you have to be doing something pretty radical to achieve that blood measurement of a state of ketosis. And now, once are you, you do are that— Are you seeing that in pro athletes? A lot. Of, I know there's a few fighters. Them, yeah. Misha Tate, before she retired, she went ketogenic. Uh, her boyfriend, Brian Caraway, I know he was ketogenic for a while. Yeah. That's just my experience with uh, athletes. But I know that there's a lot of people that are looking at it. 
Yeah, I would, you know, kind of question whether they're like ketogenic. I'm right. sure they did low carb. Um, but if you eat too much protein, that converts to glucose. It can kick you out. Yeah. But, but then again, I mean, I some some athletes that contact me, their output is really high. So they're right. actually giving like five or six hours of output a day, and they're eating like two or three chocolate bars, and they're getting like 250 grams of carbs a day, some of them. Mm-hmm. And they're maintaining a mild state of ketosis, especially right. post-exercise ketosis, even with drinking something something like the you can starch like a slow burning like a super like a slow mm. carb like uh, Tim Ferriss advocates uh, and they stay in ketosis and then if they back off more if they back their carbohydrates down to like 50 grams a day they start to lose performance on that I mean these are people with very high output though ridiculous and, output yeah ridiculous yeah, we so talk they, about five hours of exercise a day yeah. plus and, and they went from a thousand grams yeah. of carbs a day <laughs> right, right, to, right to 250 so and they're performing like better 50 grams of carbs for the standard average person this is not yeah. applicable for an MMA fighter who's doing three a days yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you I think you could especially the older guys mm-hmm. like older guys I think you could readily adapt them. Like I said, though, I think that adaptation should probably occur during training in the off season and give themselves a buffer zone of three months and and actually work with a coach or work with an app uh, like Avatar Nutrition or, or, or something where they calculate the macros and they actually know they're hitting the macros. And the body's amazing. If you actually hit the macros that are calculated, your body will go into ketosis. I've never seen, there's very few people that you can't get into keto, especially if you use things like, you know, MCT and, and really adjust the macros. And you could also do keto, ketogenic intermittent fasting where you kind of don't eat throughout the day, but then eat through a window or time-restricted eating, as uh, Rhonda Patrick calls it, where you basically you just eat within, you know, uh, a six-hour window. And I like to do that. I'll eat from, you know, 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. and just kind of eat a big meal and just kind of graze a little bit throughout. And then I get, you know a pretty good chunk of the time fasting. Um, and then after I'm done with work, you know, I'm not frantically running around trying to get stuff done so I can relax, you know, with my wife and just kind of kick back and eat and just, you know, and that's kind of when I want to eat anyway. <laughs> so you feel like there's a more of a benefit? I'm doing a 14-hour thing. You think there's even yeah. more benefit doing an 18? I do. I think you, and you know, I don't... Uh, I, I do. I For, for me, I, I definitely think I do. Um uh, because there's something about uh, like a, a couple hours extra where like if I fast for 14 hours, but then go like my ketones really start to go up from 14 to 18 hours. And then and then I could actually stay in ketosis if I eat ketogenic during that six hours of eating. If mm. I p- kind of pay attention to, you know, eating really low carb, like I can eat and before I go to bed, test my ketones and bam, I'm hitting like 2.2. Or something. So I continue to get the benefits of having ketones, but when it comes to like things like Rhonda talks about, like autophagy, I think you can even get more benefits with an 18-hour fast, and you do that. And you don't have to do it every day. I think you could just do it like you could actually do it just like once, maybe twice a week, and get a lot of benefits from that. Like if you do that over the course of a year, and that's not hard to do, mm. right? If you could just convince people, hey, take the breads and pastas out and just put in more vegetables and just do intermittent fasting, you know, every every Tuesday and Thursday. And if they do blood work after like three months, they're going to see a profound effect. Probably not even changing the diet. They're, they're going to see a profound effect. Now, is the, someone told me that there is an effective way to measure ketones through breathing. There's some sort of a breath monitor. Is, yeah. that, is that real or? 
Yeah, there's a couple out. Uh, some of them were being showcased at the uh, the conference I was at, the Low Carb USA. Um, the one that I have the most experience with is a product called Ketonics. And, uh, and now they have a Bluetooth device out where you can blow into it and it reports to your phone and it show you, shows you the parts per million of acetone in there. And acetone, so you make beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate as the two primary ketone bodies that are used for fuel. And also they have signaling properties. And acetoacetate can break down uh, spontaneously decarboxylates to something called acetone, which you know is nail polish remover, right? Mm. So uh, acetone actually has some really interesting uh, brain effects that calms the brain down, subnarcotic levels of acetone, uh, open potassium channels that when potassium channels are opened, that hyperpolarizes the membrane potentials of neurons and makes them kind of more like charged batteries. And it also kind of calms your your brain down so it's not firing action potentials as much. And that's a Whoa. good thing. So but instead of all this kind of fluttering of activity, it helps to kind of synchronize your brain in a way by elevating. And this goes back to homeostasis, right? So that acetone has can correlate with seizure control. So parents who have kids who do not like to get their fingers pricked have used the breath acetone. You blow into it, you get a pretty color. You know, the kids like it and everything. Uh, it is kind of hard to, like, set it up. you got to calibrate it. And so it's a little bit clunky to work with, but it's a pretty good indicator. If you're registering, like, orange or red on that, you are definitely in a state of ketosis. So, but I call it only semi-quantitative. So they need to work out some of the bugs. And if you just look up breath acetone meters, there's probably about five on the market now. And the one that I have experience with is called uh, ketonics. And if your acetone is high and you're not taking ketone supplements, you are burnt, you are cranking your fat metabolism. Mm. So you are really, you know, mobilizing fat and burning fat for energy. So it's a pretty valid indicator. So it's pretty good, fat but for blood is the best. Blood's the gold standard, probably will always be. There's a, technologies emerging out now, at least, you know, small companies that are uh, essentially a, you put a, like a Band-Aid-like thing on your skin and it's measuring glucose. It's measuring, uh, you know, potentially beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and things like lactate. And then it'll go to your smartphone. So you can look at your smartphone and see your glucose levels, your, your ketones, your lactate, and maybe some potentially other things. You could adjust your diet or drink a supplement to optimize you into a range you know maximizes your strength, maximizes your performance, or maximizes your brain protection in the extreme environment like high-pressure oxygen or a Navy SEAL or something like that. That technology is in development now and will probably surface sometime in the next uh, year or two. And I think it'll be pretty cool. So think of a Dexcon, but instead of just glucose, it'll give you like a metabolomic profile mm. uh, of your blood. And then there'll be, you know, you can augment it and with, with your diet or with various supplements. Now, um, I got two other important questions. One, physical performance. Um, have there been studies on reaction time, on all, all sorts of different variables that I think, I mean, if you're looking at all this increase in blood flow, this decrease in inflammation, all those things are what you would want out of a body that you want to perform better. It seems like things would fire better, as it, for yeah. lack of a better word. 
have there yeah. been studies on uh, p putting athletes through a variety of stress tests, reaction times, things along those lines? Those studies need to be done. Yeah. And I think some of the marketers out there that are promoting ketone supplements are based on some animal data. And I think they're extrapolating some of the effects. Well, ketones offer a metabolic advantage. You know, they can you can generate more ATP. You can it gives your brain resilience under you know inflammation or hyperglycemia. Uh, but the the bottom line is that these studies need to be done mm. and they need to be funded. Some of them are going on right now, and some of them are I'm kind of involved in. Uh, and probably most important is. You know what are they actually studying? Like what what ketogenic diet are they actually studying? Like what are the macronutrient ratios? Not only the ratios, but what types of fats are they using? You know what type? What's their protein source? Right. You know, uh, and that's really important. And when it comes to ketone supplements, like that's a whole other box of worms. I mean, are they using? You know, just pure sodium beta hydroxybutyrate. Are they using like sodium, potassium, magnesium combination, which would offer more benefits? Uh, are they using racemic versus a D-enantiomer? Are they using a ketone ester? So there's like lots of these uh, considerations. There's lots of nuances, you know, in the way these things are formulated, in the way they're dosed, and in what type of application, whether it's a pure strength application or what I call strength performance, like uh, push-ups and chin-ups and things like that, like uh, or, you know, endurance or ultra-endurance or things like that. So... There, a lot of research needs to be done, so I didn't really give you an answer, but I think the mm. guy who's done the most research on this, clearly, at least with the ketogenic diet, is Jeff Volick from Ohio State University. Uh, his FASTER study clearly showed that athletes in a state of nutritional ketosis burn, like, you know, almost twice the amount of fat, you know, and they maintain that, which is remarkable. I mean, does some elegant studies to show fat, oxida fat oxidation rates are, like, double of what we even thought were achievable, when guys follow a well-formulated ketogenic diet. And he recently did a study uh, using a ketone salt product showing that there was an enhancement of 8% uh, performance in work output uh, with a cyclist. So, That's and a these, big number. Yeah, 8% is pretty big. 8% yeah. for cyclists? Yeah. That's yeah. I, I, it might have been time to exhaustion. He just presented Still. it here. And I didn't even know he had the data, actually. But, <coughs> I mean, Jeff Volick is the leading researcher on, and he wrote the book, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance, which uh, a lot of MMA guys have benefited from because they email me. Uh, but these, these are studies that I'm really interested. I mean, we've done a lot of work in animal models, and now we're transitioning to uh, human studies. We have a, a study at Duke University. So I mentioned uh, oxygen toxicity to study this, you know, uh, in humans in these big environmental chambers at Duke. And then you know, we do some stuff uh, with NASA on the NASA NEMO mission I was on. Uh, but it, we're really interested in moving a lot of these uh, animal studies, which we've done. Now we're ready to move it into humans, but mm. we still don't know what the optimal supplement is. And that's why uh, Ketone Technologies, the company we developed, is really focused on identifying not the supplement that gives us the best margins for sales, but the supplement that's super optimized for particular applications. Now, uh, another question I wanted to ask you was about migraines. Now, I would assume yeah. that people with headaches, headaches, you would take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Yeah. Someone with migraines... I mean, it would it would seem to me that that would be something that might be able to help mitigate. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, there's a student. I'm on her dissertation committee, uh, Elena Gross, and she was a student uh, graduated from Oxford University and is now doing a clinical trial on uh, a ketone salts for migraines. So what motivated her to even pursue this as a PhD project is that she had crippling cluster migraine headaches. And she reached out to me and uh, she actually presented at our metabolic therapeutics conference. And that's her area of expertise. Like when it's happening to you personally, it motivates you in a way that you just immerse yourself in the research and you become like a leading expert and i think at the at the very young age that elena is and she's got a great you know background of education behind her she's kind of the leading authority on nutritional ketosis for for migraines which is a growing field because a lot of people who had migraines that have contacted me and tried either the ketogenic diet or ketone supplementation have benefited from it when nothing else worked for them and it doesn't work for everybody, but in some people that have these crippling headaches, it works better than anything that they've tried so far. Um, and migraines, uh, some of the data coming out, uh, there's two sets of data that I've seen showing that migraines are linked to neuroinflammation. Uh, for example, if it's caused by a, a viral etiology, there's kind of swelling of, of the brain that leads to uh, this kind of low systemic uh, neuroinflammation and maybe the ketones are working through an anti uh, an anti-inflammatory effects uh, sometimes like I said before people get shingles or like a cold blister they'll get like a headache throughout the day and and that's probably neuroinflammation and then there's other data to show that these migraines actually may be like a mini seizure like your brain is actually having uh, a mini seizure that's not manifesting as a grand mal or tonic-clonic seizure or even an absence seizure, but it's but it's presenting as uh, a migraine and it's seizure-like, I, I would say. So some of the data is indicating that, and ketones seem to be a viable strategy for uh, you know for migraines from what I've seen, and that's why it's being studied right now. The other question is, what about someone who's on a vegan diet? Yeah, I get this a lot. I have a really close friend. Uh, she's vegetarian, uh, uh, Dr. Dawn Carnegas at IHMC. Uh, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, for a vegetarian, it's relatively easy, right? Because you have eggs. dairy and you have eggs, and eggs are a huge staple. I buy the happy eggs, which actually taste a lot better. They're like the free-range eggs. <coughs> uh, but a vegan diet is a little more challenging. The Charlie Foundation's uh, dietitian, Beth Zupatkania is her name, uh, if you go to the Charlie Foundation website, I think you may be able to find some information or a pamphlet that describes how to uh, put together a vegan uh, ketogenic diet. So there's no way that you can hit the macronutrient ratios of uh, a ketogenic diet that's vegan unless it's in a shake form. So in this case, you know, formulating a, a product that's more in a liquid form that you can drink is probably the way to go. Uh, if you do do a vegan ketogenic diet, whole food, the best that you could do is really about maybe 60% fat, maybe 70% fat. And if you formulate the diet with coconut oil and MCT, that'll get your ketones up. And then if you consume, you know, one of these uh, various products on the market that are essentially medical foods or drinks that you can drink, you know, you can stay in nutritional ketosis. So it's a it's a struggle. It's po it's possible, but it's way much much harder. Uh, people do do it though, and they follow vegan for ethical reasons or for uh, cultural reasons, and they've been able to do it. But vegetarian is doable. 
a vegetarian is very doable with eggs. <laughs> if you can use eggs and dairy, I tend to minimize dairy in, in uh, my diet, but yeah, so eggs are huge. So you, you minimize can, dairy because of the effect it has on you? or Like a lot of dairy protein, like whey, it kind of started with whey protein and I drank it for years and maybe I just built up an allergy to it. But if I were to drink like a full shake of whey protein right now, it would my it wouldn't agree with my mm. gut. Uh, although I can I can eat butter and I can eat sour cream, uh, fine, no problem. And a lot of dairy protein, especially casein. If I eat uh, uh, not sour cream, uh, cottage cheese. cheese, cottage cheese. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. That can start to irritate my gut a little bit. So I generally just minimize it. I do like cheese is kind of a weakness for me, so I might get a little bite of cheese here and there. Like almost every day, even when I'm home. But uh, but I know dairy really was the the cornerstone of the ketogenic diet with the original ketogenic diet with the like what Johns Hopkins was formulating because it's so easy and it tastes good. Right. Right. Uh, but I do find that when people are following the ketogenic diet for weight loss and they kind of pull out the dairy, their fat loss increases. So I've observed that kind of anecdotally. I'm not sure if people have studied it, but if they just, for example pull out the heavy cream and put in uh, concentrated coconut milk, which I use for my heavy cream, which almost has the same cream-like consistency. Mm. Uh, and they take out the butter, maybe use more coconut oil, and just kind of switch out dairy for other things, their fat loss. And something about dairy in some people, not everybody, uh, maybe causes them to retain water. It might be like a mild allergen. So for me, I'm okay with it as long as I kind of minimize it. But I've just heard so many stories. One, uh, there's a case report now of a mother who had an autistic child and put them on a ketogenic diet and did remarkably well and then made it dairy-free. And it was really the dairy that was contributing to some of the symptoms. So I think, and this went, this is in the medical literature. It's like on PubMed. She used a dairy-free ketogenic diet and had quote-unquote remission in an autistic child, I first saw it presented in an abstract at a meeting, and I was like, wow, I was really blown away. And then about a year later, it came out, and it was in a pretty good uh, pretty good uh, journal as a peer-reviewed publication and a pretty well-documented case report That's of putting an you know, autistic child into remission with a ketogenic diet. So we talk about emerging applications. I know my colleagues, uh, Dr. Jung Ro and Dr. Susan Massino, are studying uh, and I mentioned this because I get so many emails about it, the ketogenic diet for autism. So well, I think so many things are could be the next frontier. Inflammation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be linked and to if, inflammation. If, if diet, you know, reduces inflammation and if diet without dairy reduces inflammation further. Yeah. And I know uh, a lot of people are having uh, some great effects with CBD oils, which again, reduce inflammation. Something I'm very interested in. Yeah, I've talked like to inflammation is just such a giant factor in in, yep. in negative health consequences. Yeah. Ketogenic <clears throat> diet plus uh, CBD uh, plus hyperbaric oxygen therapy plus ketone supplementation is something that I wanted to study in a brain tumor model. Uh, I've just gotten too many emails from uh, parents that have kids with epilepsy and also people who have cancer who use CBD oil and they felt it was remarkably you know, effective for them. So uh, I've talked with the, the CEO of Charlotte's Web and another CBD. I use that CBD. stuff all the time. We'll right here, yeah. I'll take well, I've a... never actually tried. Is that the Charlotte's? Is that yeah. their brand? Yeah, Charlotte's yeah. Web. So is this uh, standardized uh, for a certain level of THC? It's below a certain level? Yeah. Is it each yeah, it batch is standardized? It doesn't get you high, if that's what you mean. 
Yeah. Okay. So that was sort of the problem. I tried to do this work with our university and then I need a DEA number. Mm -hmm. And it was like all the students had to have a DEA and it it became like so much red tape. But I'm going to revisit this project and probably reconnect with them. Yeah, I'll I'll try to connect you if you like. uh, Okay. Because uh, they're actually a sponsor of the podcast. Really? And yeah, they sent me a bunch of it and I tried it out for a while before I took them on as a sponsor. I'm like, this stuff's legit. I read up about it. You know, they, yeah. they use the whole plant as well. Yeah. So it has all yep. the cannabinoids. All the other cannabinoids, yeah, yeah. which I think is important. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's companies that have patented the specific cannabidiol mm-hmm. on there. And, and that's kind of, I was going to use that. And there's a lot of, you know, DEA regulation even mm-hmm. on that, I think. But yeah, I was, I'm going to revisit that project because I really think uh, some of the things that we do with the QJank diet and supplementation will synergize uh, either be additive or synergistic mm. with, with CBD. And I mean, I love this idea of developing very powerful therapies that make the patient come out more healthy or does not cripple their immune system or their general health when they come out the other side. Especially with right? cancer. So, I mean, that's, yeah. that's just yep. absolutely incredible that you could have a more robust person post-therapy. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's possible. <coughs> yeah. So with cancer, it is tricky. Like yeah. every person is different. Uh, but if you get a robust, like healthy person to begin with, and you can develop a therapy that manages their tumor, uh, and I've seen very healthy per- people come out severely crippled after rounds of chemo. I've seen people killed with chemo. I mean, I know quite a few people actually, sadly, that have been killed literally by the standard of care. And this, uh, you, you should really have my colleague on here. He's a, he's a very dynamic speaker, uh, a little bit controversial in some ways, but Dr. Uh, Professor Thomas Seyford from Boston College, uh, he wrote the book Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. And uh, it's a fantastic book that, you know, elegantly documents the, the theory of cancer as a metabolic disease uh, with a lot of hard data. And Travis Christofferson uh, wrote a book called Tripping Over the Truth. And I wrote the foreword to the book, which discusses uh, why we view cancer as a genetic disease and kind of lays out the data and, um, you know, all the evidence to support cancer as a metabolic disease and what we should most importantly, like what we can do about that in regards. And that has major implications for not only how we treat cancer, but how we prevent cancer. So I talked about, you know, fasting to purge your body of precancerous cells. Mm. So it would fall in line with that. But there's really good hard data uh, behind, you know, this idea that cancer is not, maybe not necessarily all cancers are, you know, metabolic in origin, but a large majority of them appear to be. And, uh, and I think the National Cancer Institute and other organizations are, uh, aware of this, and now they're funding more grants that actually target cancer metabolism, and even developing metabolic therapy clinics for you know targeting tumor metabolism. So this this was never this never happened you know uh, seven eight years ago when I got into this. Mm. It was kind of unheard of, uh, but there's a lot of interest now in pharmaceutical companies developing these target molecules that inhibit specific glycolytic sugar consuming pathways. So as evidence, so the ketogenic diet is great, right? Because it hits many pathways in synergy. Like one of my uh, slides, you know, that I have in my conversation or uh, in the presentations that I do is clearly shows like it, you can see all the boxes there. Mm-hmm. So this is the ketogenic diet and these are all the different signaling pathways that it's working through. And I would say pharmaceutical companies, 
may put billions of dollars just into one of those little boxes. You know, the ketogenic diet works. It's so powerful because it's many different, it's many different uh, signaling, it's many different pathways kind of working in synergy for a common output. And this, this particular slide was the, the neuropharmacological uh, effect that it has on suppressing uh, seizures, the anticonvulsant effect. Wow. So, and each one of these is validated with uh, a number of peer-reviewed publications that you can bring up on PubMed. So it's not like something some guy put together. I mean, it's right. published and it's like, you go to PubMed, oh, HDAC activity, okay, but, you know, there's like a half dozen publications to support each one of these. So that's what's really exciting to me because there's just like <coughs> so much to be kind of discovered in so many different applications. And like I said, it feeds back to nutrition, which was like one of the main things that motivated me, you know, early on in college. So I can do, you know, go back to something I'm really passionate about. It's all fascinating, man, across the board. Uh, and thank you for sharing this, man. Thank yeah. you, really. It's thanks a, for giving thanks me the platform. For, mm -hmm. Thanks for going on the Tim Ferriss show. And without that, I would have probably well, never. I thank heard Tim of you. for that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks, Tim. <laughs> um, and uh, if somebody wanted to get started with this, what's the yeah. best resource? Like, what, what do you think would be the best way uh, to read yeah. into it? And I got a few. So I would say just go to our website. I have a website, Keto Nutrition, all one word, dot org. Okay. And on that website, I have a list of resources from ebooks to i mean there's ketogenic pizza there's uh there's what, link what, what? <laughs> yeah. how do you make ketogenic pizza what's that uh yeah i mean is the, it almond flour the, or something the, the crust is essentially like uh like chicken and parmesan cheese pounded into like a crust where they put you know the the cheese and, and the sauce on or a low carb huh. sauce on top of that yeah i love this stuff it's real foods uh company is i think someone told me that they're in ralph's here so i guess they're really doing they're doing really wow. well but i'll have like one or two of those for breakfast in the morning especially if i'm kind of on, on the go they taste they're legit they're really really good wow. like i vetted out a lot of things and just kind of very particular towards things that i really like and actually tested so this is something that i've kind of like tested with blood work uh, so ketonutrition.org i have a link there if you click on that link it's you get a discount on uh on the on the uh, product, uh, Max Love Project is really. I mean, if there's families out there, parents out there that have kids that have cancer, please contact the Max Love Project, and they are helping so many families through uh, innovative application of the ketogenic diet for childhood cancers. Uh, Verda Health. So type two diabetes is like the elephant in the room. It's a massive project. Verda Health is basically tackling this project. Uh, by curing, literally, quote-unquote, reversing type 2 diabetes uh, in up to 100 million people wow. <laughs> in the next uh, decade, I think. That's really... And I, and I talked about people who are just embarking just on diet alone or the ketogenic diet. Avatar Nutrition is a way that allows people to not only calculate their macros, because people are horrible calculating what they eat, but it has a, an algorithm in it that if you put in body composition changes on a weekly basis, it will tell you. You know, it will guide you step by step to your ultimate goal. And as far as I know, there's another system like that. I mean, it's like... Think of Weight Watchers, but like a version like 5.0 and Weight Watchers that actually works with you. Uh, so I think I'm going to have all these resources on ketonutrition.org. But if you Google any of those terms, uh, Keto Pet Sanctuary for people who have dogs that have epilepsy or dogs that have cancer, look up Keto Pet Sanctuary. Dot com. There's an ebook on there. It's completely free. You can download it and get the recipe on how to put your dog food together uh, that can not only 
prevent or help treat cancer or seizures, but also just get your dog as healthy as possible. And, you know, uh, the Charlie Foundation, I really have to give, I acknowledge the Charlie Foundation in my TEDx talk, and they were probably one of the leading foundations that really convinced me in talking with Hollywood producer Jim Abrams and uh, really convinced me that the ketogenic diet was legitimate uh, outside of the peer-reviewed papers that I was reading. And uh, and there's a movie by Meryl Streep actually called First Do No Harm. So Meryl Streep did a movie on the ketogenic diet that most what? people <laughs> look it up. It's really? called uh, First Do No Harm. Wow. So Meryl Streep starred in a ketogenic diet movie. That's incredible. And, uh, and it was that movie really floored me because uh, I had no idea that she did it actually. But uh, it's that movie and meeting Jim, uh, meeting Jim Abrams and what the Charlie Foundation is doing through uh, global uh, education has really inspired me to pursue this path, all the people that they're helping. So it was so cool that I could, I feel really blessed to be able to get into a field of research that is in line with what I was funded to do, which was enhance safety, performance, and resilience in the warfighter, but apply it to so many other things and, uh, and also apply it to myself, which is, has been kind of a journey in and of itself that I've really enjoyed. Amazing stuff, man. Again, thank you very much. Thank you really. Thanks for, for having uh, me, just, Joe. I can't thank you enough for being here. It just blew me away. It was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. See ya.